you can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie. And we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews. But now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie. And we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Angie's List is now Angie. And we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Sacred Symbols, a PlayStation podcast, is brought to you by, well, you. If you want to learn how to support our show, go to Patreon.com slash LastStandMedia. Greetings and salutations. Welcome back to Sacred Symbols, a PlayStation podcast. This is episode number 166. My name is Colin Moriarty. I'm joined today by only one of my sons, Dustin Furman. Hello. Dustin, executive producer of Last Day Media, of course. How are you today? I'm doing well. I, I hope it showed up in the take. I just had a light bulb fall down for the video. Like as soon as we started, it just crashed. And, oh, I didn't uh, see that. So but no, it's it's fine. It's just it's uh it's just it's just here just lighting up the ground instead. Yeah, well, that's fine. That's okay. Uh, our boy Chris, um, amongst uh, some of the flooding in New York right now. Indeed. So, yeah, Chris isn't here today because, yeah, the hurricane, what was it, Ida? I think that was that what it was? Yeah. The, that, that hit the Gulf Coast in the United States. Obviously, those storms arc up and usually diminish in power, but still contain tons of rain. And so we had that rain in Virginia and in Pennsylvania. In fact, Dagan got hammered pretty bad i think his his basement flooded but chris was in new york city which was just completely inundated with water so he's getting out of there now and going i think upstate to his parents but he will not be able to make the episode today for understandable reasons but we'll do the best we can in his stead how is your life uh dustin we're our at the time we're recording this this will actually go live before it for patrons too but right we're about to do our live show so we've been busy i've been prepared i like um well, let me back up and say that I typically let travel ruin my entire life for like a week or two before it happens. <laughs> and that's no different here. But I do have this really good. I ha- I'm really good at when I know I have to do something at a hard date. I'm pretty good at being like, this is everything that needs to get done in my mind. And then I just slowly tick them off day by day. Right. And so I'm feeling pretty good right now as we go into our test balloon live show in Western Pennsylvania. How are you feeling about it? I feel great. It's funny. Last week. I think last week I felt more stressed out just because there were still some more factors 
whatever that needed to be lined up and now those are lined up and basically like <laughs> this sounds weird but it's like there's no, like it's just gonna it's go time so like we gotta it's just like we have everything lined up everything should be good if anything goes disastrously wrong which i can't think of anything it's like at this point i don't it would even know be, how it would right how it would be out of our control if anything went disastrously long like really bad at this point but i'm like it's nice the last two days i've actually feel like wow i can actually be excited about this now because it's all ready to go and it it really today it, it starts today because my my parents are going to be getting in actually like while we're recording um and then tomorrow we're going to be hopefully like getting everything set up you got everyone is going to be here tomorrow the staff arrive tomorrow and then saturday is go time so indeed i'm i'm very excited it's like it's going to be a um i mean you've done live events of course before but i've never done anything like this as far as like i've been in bands that played shows and stuff like that but never anything quite like this so it's going to be a little bit of a surreal experience in a good way yeah the, the reality is is that i mean unless i'm mistaken which i could be is that this is gonna be very easy yeah i and think it will be too that yeah we just have to show up and figure out what we learn and and really study this i'm really interested in studying the situation from what we can take away from it because i think it i mean from a business standpoint it's not only a great source of revenue for our company but it's also which i think is more and more important for our company as we have more and more mouths to feed of course but also i just think it's going to be a fun way to interact with the audience and i want to figure out exactly the best way to do that to like maximize the amount of time where people come to a show and feel like well they got something out of it they got a little bit of interactivity and you know an evening with like right. i said so i'm excited about it as well yeah the travel is the only thing i'm not looking forward to i think we'll do the next one in richmond where mm. i don't have to uh to go anywhere all right i wanted to say something really quick i didn't even put this in the the document actually okay i got a bunch of dms letters whatever from the audience on patreon as you guys know and of course our show is supported on patreon at patreon.com slash last stand media we're the biggest games centric patreon in the world thanks to about twelve thousand of you out there and so come join us get early ad free access to the show and the ability to submit questions comments concerns thoughts and ideas etc so on sacred symbols plus which we'll talk about in a moment but david i'm not gonna use his last name because i didn't know if he wanted me to but david wrote in and it was really a sad letter because a lot of people write in about this, that, or the other thing, all sorts of stuff. But David wrote in about his four-year-old son, Simon, who passed away and he had a sporadic brain bleed, he said, and uh, I guess was sick since he was an infant. But David was saying how in the short time that he and his son got to like be on the planet together that they bonded over video games. And he was saying how his son was like very smitten with Dark Souls and Final Fantasy X and Smash Brothers while he was playing them and stuff. And I found the letter obviously incredibly sad and we are so sorry for David and his family's loss. But it also reminded me and why I wanted to bring it up was just because he had brought it up in his letter, too, is that like games proved to be such an important co connection in that brief time and that they can actually have true meaning and that he'll always recall these, you know, not four years because the kid was obviously not cognizant of these games for that entire time, but the couple of years maybe that he was and. So he wanted to kind of point out, and I think it's it's powerful that games can have a, a greater poignance and maximal poignance in your life, depending on just like any other piece of media, what's going on in your life and who you enjoy it with or what's going on in the world, et cetera. So wanted to wish him the best. Also wanted to just remind everyone, you never know when 
your card's going to get pulled, frankly. And it's important to always, or try to always maximize, I think, that that important time. Never leave things badly with your family. I'm not great at talking to my family. Like, my extended family, I don't talk to very much with, except, except for my uncle and aunts. My siblings, I talk to, and my parents, obviously, but I never leave it badly with them. If we have, like, a disagreement or something, I never leave it that way, because you never know uh, what's going to happen. So anyway, shout out to David and uh, wishing you the very best. As I mentioned just a moment ago, Dustin, Sacred Symbols Plus, we're rolling on. This is now two episodes a week of our show, exclusive on Patreon. Unless, you know, sometimes, and I'm going to talk about one of these episodes, we will put them live on YouTube if they're like the David Jaffe interview. Obviously, everyone wanted to hear that and stuff. But generally speaking, those things are behind the paywall, and we really do appreciate you on that front. We have a few really good ones recently, including Final Fantasy VII Remake, Integrate, Yuffie DLC, conversation that Lord Cognito from Defining Duke, our sister podcast, did. And we also, let's see, well, actually, you're about to post after this goes live an interview. You did, So talk to me a little bit about what you're doing, because a little bit more hardware stuff is we want to kind of try to continue to explore these various facets. Right. And we're going to talk about this a little bit in the show today. But there recently was a PlayStation 5 model change that my friend Jimmy Champagne from the channel PS Ready, he checked it out with a YouTuber named Austin Evans. They kind of broke this story about the new version uh, and it created a little bit of a controversy. So I had him on. Uh, we'll be talking about that this this Saturday's Sacred Symbols Plus. And it'll be all about kind of like the present and future of PlayStation 5 hardware. It was a really fun conversation. And uh, I'm looking forward to you guys hearing it. Yeah, I, I am too. Obviously, a couple weeks ago we did. Uh, or I sat down uh, with Moore's Law is Dead, Tom at Moore's Law is Dead for another very hardware centric conversation people really liked. So that's kind of the great thing about Sacred Symbols Plus being twice a week is now we can really start rolling all these different things. One interview that I did recently, though, I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, Big Squeak wrote in about this. A lot of people wrote in about it, but I'll read Big Squeak's inquiry he says, Colin, I feel like you're too humble to read this live. I'm not, <laughs> but I hope you do. Your interview on Sacred Symbols Plus with Philip Mewson is another sterling example of why your listeners should subscribe to Patreon. This interview gave Philip voluminous amounts of oxygen to tell a story, but you knew exactly when to crimp the hose to ask pertinent questions when his remarks demanded greater clarity. While his interview has no doubt spurred polarizing responses from the audience, I can't help but acknowledge how this is a sign of a great interview, allowing your subject to floor the floor while maintaining control through pointing questioning. Even if you only read this, know that the level of content is what makes Last Stand Media such an outstanding value on Patreon. Thank you, Big Squeak, and everyone else that wrote in. Now, he says, Dustin, that the response has been polarizing. It has been yeah. about the subject matter. Right. What I've been really pleased about, because I was interested, I'm like, what will people think about my interview style? I mean, I had to really remove myself from the interview. I have a deep bias towards IGN and know people that have been victimized. And for people that don't know, Philip Mewson, of course, is the plagiarist that was fired from IGN three years ago and he sat down with me for a long conversation about the entire event on on Sacred Symbols Plus and uh, we really appreciate that people liked that episode but I wanted to say just as an extra tip tip of the cap to the audiences and I said this on Twitter too is that I'm just so pleased that we have an adult of uh, an audience of adults and I don't mean that literally everyone's an adult although we can see our numbers and most of you are adults but it's just so good that people understood like wow I don't even know if I'm going to like this episode. I don't know if I'm going to believe anything this guy says. Yet they're like, yeah, this is awesome that you did this. And 
a lot of places have these ideological barriers set up around their shows so stringently that they simply aren't capable of doing something like that. It's not even possible. In fact, their audience wouldn't even know what to do with an episode like the Philip Musen episode. So a lot of people have been asking me, what did I think about it? And my big takeaway from it, because I had to reflect on it. I was in the moment. I didn't know what he was going to say. I think that he's a guy seems nice enough. In way over his head. And it's a cautionary tale about why and everyone learns this in their life, usually not as badly as Philip did. But when you lie and then you lie again and then you lie again and so on and so forth, and you can't even keep track of what is real and what isn't, the jig is up and eventually you're going to be found out in some way. It doesn't have to be plagiarism. It doesn't have to be anything like that. I just think it's a very and people really like that. I called it a cautionary tale on the podcast because I'm like, you just have there are no shortcuts in life. No shortcuts. Philip, as nice as he seems, thought he could take a shortcut. He took many shortcuts. And the deleterious effect that it had on everyone around him, not to mention the person that might have lost out on the job, the all the trouble that they had to go through, any legal ramifications that might have been brought up. And so people ask, like, did I believe what he said? And I'm like, I believed some of what he said, and I didn't believe some things that he said. And the audience, what's great, and this is what I think Big Squeak was talking about in his letter was it's just really like it's all over the board on that front. Some people are like, wow, what a brave interview for him to do. I hope he makes a comeback and he does great. And then there's like the exact polar opposite where it's like this guy is a fucking liar. And that's what I want to do. You know, like it's we're not always going to have interviews like that, but I'm so glad that I can put that and just drop that. And everyone understands what the intent is. So thank you so much for that. Dustin, you were there for it. In fact, I never have had you on an interview before because I was like, I don't know what's going to happen. Right. So I want to make sure that like I have someone here and someone that's witnessing like what's happening because I have no idea. I've never talked to this person one on one. I don't know him, but it ended up being quite amiable. And I will say at the end, I am glad that he found a new job. I am glad that he moved on with his life. He made a horrible I wouldn't even call it a mistake it's a choice right it's not a mistake it's a choice it was a it was something he did over and over and over again but I don't know that it's necessarily has to ruin his life although it did and so what you get out of that is up to you I hope you guys take the time to listen to it and we will put it up on free feeds at least on YouTube eventually probably next week but uh, Dustin what do you uh, what did you make of it I I wanted I was kind of curious what you thought of our conversation because it was so God, man, I mean, it was huge. It was a huge point of conversation in our audience. Right. I I mean, I'll be honest. I, I was glad when I saw the audience that was saying, like, I felt really uncomfortable listening to this, but not in a bad way, because that's exactly how I felt. I was so for the audience, we use Zencaster. Basically, I was in the call. I made sure everyone's audio was good. And then I just mute myself, both audio and video. So I was just listening and observing uh, in the background. It wasn't like I was secretly there, like Philip knew, right? Right, right, right. Yeah, I wouldn't do that. But I wouldn't do that. What was, it was just interesting because I was just sitting there at certain points and like you couldn't see my reaction at all, but I was like, oh my. Like, and that's what I think what came out so good about it was is that I think you pressed him in the right ways, which obviously we're not going to satisfy everybody uh, and how they would have liked it to go. Because there was, I mean, very few comments, but I did see some people that's like, why didn't Colin say X, Y, Z? And, 
you know, really hit him hard with this. And I was like, that's just not what we're trying to do. And I think you did push back in a lot of appropriate areas, but I certainly did. Yeah. I mean, there's no doubt I would. I'm very proud of actually. I mean, I said it's 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 not easy. I have no nothing personal against them. So it's hard to say to someone to look at their face and be like, you don't belong in this industry. Right. Mm -hmm. Like you made it. You scarlet lettered yourself so bad that you don't belong here. But I, I did say that. Yeah. Right. I did ask him about like, how do you not understand this, that or the other thing? But I also I, I thought it was interesting. I mean, did did you um what do you think the reaction is going to be? I mean, because we, we don't know yet. What do you think the reaction will be when it goes up for everybody? Honestly, I, I made a joke. I I was on my Twitch stream and the name of my Twitch stream was uh, Subtweet Police because I was trying to see if anyone was going to talk shit on the fact that we did it. Right. And honestly, the the feedback from people from IGN has been not positive, but not negative towards us, like very respectful about the conversation, what I've seen so far. I just want to know, like, I, I'm just very surprised that no one has been like, wow, these guys gave him a platform to talk. Look at how horrible. Like, I'm just I'm expecting that to happen, but maybe maybe not. Maybe people will just I think that what we truly can ex expect is that people to just ignore it even though it's a big deal because uh, they don't want to give us any air, even though this is probably, I mean, this three years ago, this was the absolute biggest story in games media for yep. a very, like two months, two or three months. This was a huge deal. And there hasn't been a scandal quite to this extent since. So it's just, it's, it'll be interesting to see if people uh, try to ignore it or not, but, I don't know. That's up to them. I'm just glad that we could provide something to our audience that was of substance. I totally agree. And uh, I'm so I'm stoked about that. Thank you so much for that. Check it out. If you haven't already, give us your feedback one way or the other. It's funny because the there are I was reading a lot of the feedback and there was some of those like, why didn't you push back this or the other thing? I was just like, I don't think you I don't want it to be a combative interview where he shuts down rather we can just let him speak. You probably have never heard me speak less on one of my shows than I do on that show. So you're adults. You can take from it what you will. And it's your kind support that allows us to do that. So thanks again. And uh, yeah, I wish I did wish, though, someone did ask, why didn't you ask him like what the process was like? And I was like, fuck, that was the one question I should have asked, which was like, so you are cribbing dead space. All right. So what does that look like? Right. Do you Google around? How did you find this random ass video? Like all of that really get into the minutia. And that was the thing that I couldn't walk away from. Where I was like, it's so much. What you did is so much harder. Right. Like That's the ironic thing. You were so pressed for time and so stressed out. But what you did was harder. Uh, anyway. You can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. 
fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. All right. Let's get into some corrections and notes. Mark Grouch wrote in about something. He said, hello, gentlemen. In last week's episode, you talked about the install size of Call of Duty. Friend of the show, Moore's Law is Dead, who we just brought up, recently had a VFX artist on his Broken Silicon podcast who worked on the Call of Duty Black Ops Cold War game at Treyarch. Interestingly, he's moved on to Sony Santa Monica to work on the next God of War. Anyway, during the podcast, the guy says that the reason Call of Duty has so many such large install sizes is because every single gun skin, character skin, cosmetic, etc. are all part of the game's file size. Each season adds at least 150 plus cosmetics in the battle pass, and that's not even counting the stuff you can buy in the in-game store. Hope this helps. Thanks for everything. So that makes sense. We were kind of wondering about this because the of the conspiracy that is sometimes floated, Dustin, that, well, could, is it possible they're doing this for on purpose? Right. Because people get throttled and whatever the case might be. So what do you think about this explanation straight from the horse's mouth? I, I believe, uh, I mean, this guy would know more than anybody if he worked on the game. So that makes sense to me. The, the size of the install, though, is so big that. I feel like even 150 gun skins, like it's it, the ratio doesn't seem to line up to me, but maybe those are like extremely detailed models or something. So that doesn't exactly, I'm not saying it's not true, but it doesn't make sense in my brain. I'd like to mm. hear a, a bigger explanation. Like how, how big is one gun skin, like one DLC that someone can buy? How much space does that take up? Just because man, the, the file size of of these games just is huge like absolutely huge it's absurd and i'm not totally satisfied by it but why wouldn't he know that right, right? why exactly. wouldn't that guy know exactly why the file size is as big as it is that just seems like something he would know so thank you for that and of course thanks for tom uh, and his hard work over there at broken silicon and moore's law is dead i'm going to set you up the, the bomb right now let you hit this out of the park dr mo wrote into us and said colin i may be a doctor but there is much i do not know you and the boys frequently use terms like shovelware and vaporware, but I have no clue what these terms mean. Please drop some much needed knowledge on me and define these terms. Uh, and then he says he'd love to make that video game le- or that we make that video game lexicon video. I-, I do want to do that at some point, And that's a project that we'll put in the future because I think that'd be so fun. Right. But although a lot of work. So yeah. it's something that we have to put off. What do you uh, answer Dr. Mo's question? What is shovelware and what is vaporware? I-, I bet you if he's asking that a lot of people don't know either. So. Okay. Right. So to my understanding, shovelware is like, I don't know the reason behind the name. Shovelware to me is is like the games that are you find it like the, the bargain bin at Walmart. Like no one knows what they are. They're just like quickly, cheaply made games that are meant to sell. Uh, they shovel them on. The they shovel shelves. them on. Right. That's, That's a great way. Shovelware. Yeah. Vaporware are games that are maybe announced or shown and then seemingly either disappear or not heard from like uh, the Rockstar game. Agent is vaporware. Right. Right. Exactly right. You also sometimes hear the term abandonware. Right. Although that is an also both an older term and a term that indicates a little bit further advanced, like maybe you have an alpha or a beta. Vaporware typically never comes to fruition at all. So vaporware would be like 
What's a good example? Oh, like we talked about Wild a week or two ago. Yes. The PS4 game from Michelle Ancel. That's a great example of vaporware. Games that just never appear. The Getaway 3 is another one of those games. Yeah, shovelware, the term shovelware really came to prominence during the Wii era, although that term had started really being shoveled around during the PS1 and PS2 eras. Because So what people have to understand is that cartridge-based games were so expensive to make that even cheap, shitty games had limited runs and they were typically profitable. Often, first of all, you had, of course, the Nintendo seal of quality, and that's its whole thing. But even people that figured out how to override those, like Color Dreams or Tension, were sued into oblivion. And then you, of course, of course, had EA doing the same kind of thing on Genesis. And they eventually came together. Of course, I've told the story about how Naughty Dog's Genesis game, Rings of Power, they only were able to print, I think, 150,000 copies of it because they simply could not get more cartridges. The reason I bring this up is because once CDs came in, whether they're Black Bottom Dream or Black Bottom PS1 games, regular CDR Dreamcast games, etc., these just become way cheaper to make, way more accessible to make. Also, the rise of Polygonal, Polygonal using software not so much on N64 but specifically on PS1, it just blew everything wide open. Suddenly, you could make a game pretty cheap and print it for pretty cheap, and you didn't even really need anyone's permission to do so. So. Shovelware became a huge problem as it increased, and it really hit the crescendo in, in the Wii era. And of course, the major piece of the most famous piece of shovelware, I think, of all time is probably Carnival Games, yeah. but which is a which was a famous Wii game that probably sold like 30 million copies or something insane like that. And it was just you would see it in GameStop. It was cheap and they would just have like copies of it on the counter or whatever. And it was just it was garbage. And that's so those are where the terms come from. And doctor, if you wrote in about that, Dr. Mo, then I'm sure other people have questions about it as well. All right, let's get into the heart of the matter right now. There are a bunch of news. So this is actually an interesting episode. And it's too bad Chris isn't here for it because there's going to be a lot of back and forth. There are all of these pieces of news. We'll get into the actual proper news that I wrote up. But there's all of these smaller pieces of news or some big pieces of news that just don't require a write up. And we can get into all of them. Let's take them in order and start with this PlayStation event. So we have found out that there's going to be a PlayStation Showcase, PlayStation Showcase 2021, they're calling it. And it occurs Thursday, September 9th, 2021, one Pacific. So that's nine in London, I want to say. And four for us here on the East Coast. And the, the write up's real brief. It says you've been awfully patient and we thank you for that. And now we're looking forward to showing you what we've been working on. Tune in next Thursday, blah, blah, blah. The showcase will weigh in around 40 minutes and include updates from PlayStation Studios and some of the industry's most imaginative developers for games releasing this holiday and beyond. And stick around after the presentation to get more updates from some of the studio teams featured in the showcase. And then they note no PSVR. So PS5 will be the central focus, which is very exciting. We've been waiting a very long time for this. Jake Diargella wrote in and said, what are our expectations for the Sony event that has finally been confirmed? It's been about a year since we've had an event of this scale. And despite this, I have weirdly low expectations. I'm not expecting to see much from the new God of War or even maybe new game announcements from first party. Am I just jaded or is it finally time for Sony to unveil? Thanks. I disagree. I think I have pretty big expectations for this. I'm wondering what you think, Dustin. Yeah, I think I feel like you can lock in God of War that you'll see it. I don't know how much, but since they originally announced that this game was coming out this year, even though we all knew that was never going to happen, I feel like it would make sense that they would want to really start to get the marketing going on this. 
And there's a lot of things that getting some updates on would be great. Obviously, Gran Turismo. I don't even think, is there even a new release date for that? We know it's 2022, but there's no date. Yeah, no, no release date. I, I agree with you. I think God of War and Gran Turismo are slam dunks. And I, I would assume the game that's closest you'll get a release date for. I mean, I, I think that's possible, too. Right. But you'll definitely see those two games. I mean, there's no doubt. Here's my wild card. Okay, the wild card prediction. Wild card, bitches. Yeah. Is we keep seeing these interviews with Herman Hulse where he talks about uh, second party or uh, just like partners. And then he keeps mentioning from software. Mm. I'm not saying I know I put out a tweet today where I was like, please, for a Bloodborne. I'm not I'm not making a Bloodborne 2 or anything kind of prediction. But do you think that there's any uh, something intentional where. Herman Hulse keeps mentioning from software when they haven't partnered with each other since Bloodborne, technically, that he's like low key, like, oh, yeah, some of our partners. Well, I think there's something to this in the sense. First of all, they did. And you played it. They did do another game together. Duress and A. Right. That is true. PSVR, so that came out in 2018. And then they did Sekiro with Activision. And obviously, Elden Ring is coming out next year. They've really slowed down. Mm-hmm. In fact, if you look at their chart of games and you remove Duress and A, Bloodborne was only three games ago for them. Right. Right. And that includes Sekiro. So it's or I'm sorry, that includes Elden Ring. So it's Elden Ring working backwards. Elden Ring, Sekiro, Dark Souls, three Bloodborne. Right. right? Yeah. And so I say that only because I think there's an opening for them. And here's what I think about Bloodborne is that Sony knows that game is huge. I mean, they're not stupid. That game is huge. And there has been a rumor for a long time that Bloodborne would get ported to PS5. I think that's inevitable. I also think it should come to PC. Yeah. But and I, I say should because I think that there's just more of an orange to squeeze there. I mean, why not at this point? But I think you'll see Bloodborne ported to PS5. Maybe you'll see it here. And that would be a nice way to tease a new Bloodborne. They know. But from might also not want to go there yet because they're kind of distracted right now. And right. Elden Ring is an early or mid-January release. It's an awkward time to release a game. I, it seems to me that they need that time. And. So who knows? I do agree with you because we'll talk a little bit about Kojima later on. They, they bring up Kojima and from pretty often. Yeah. And I don't know if it's just because they have that established and they've had that established relationship with them forever, but they know Bloodborne is big. I really just think it's a matter of if they can get from to make it or not. And remember, of course, that Sony owns Bloodborne, so they don't have to get them to make it. They can get someone else to make it. I just don't think that that's the right move, of course, for the franchise. Here's a question. Also, is this the event where we finally hear about the announcement about the purchase of Bluepoint? Yeah, I, I think that could be it, too. And see what would be interesting here. This is where and, and it's so frustrating. Two things. First of all, they announced it so close, right? Which is fine, because then you don't have to wait too long. It's like seven days away from when we're recording this. But doing that doesn't give us a lot of time to do like a Sacred Symbols Plus. Plus, we're doing the live show this weekend. So we're just not even going to be around to like get really deep into the nitty gritty. Like what do I think is going to happen here? But yeah, that, that hanging situation with blue point is peculiar. I still, I still feel like it's almost unbelievable to, to assume that they just made that document or that, that picture at Sony Japan <laughs> right. on accident. I, I don't, as I said, for people that don't know, when they announced, when Sony announced the Housemark acquisition, Sony Japan's Twitter account tweeted out an image of an acquisition of Bluepoint. And to me, that if you just rewind from that, I mean, what happened? How could that even be? Right. 
And it was other more, than that, there were multiple images and they used the wrong one. Right. right. And it was more than just like some intern accidentally put the, the wrong logo on. They like specifically for the one that was for Housemark had Returnal as like in the in the slot in the background, the main whatever. And for the blue point one, it had Demon Souls. So it was a little bit more custom than just a logo. It, it's not something you do on accident. Uh, like you don't accidentally <laughs> make a welcome to the family blue point photo. Yeah, I agree. So now the connection here is, uh, is it Metal Gear? I mean, <laughs> if they announce the blue point acquisition, will they say like now we're getting in now we're getting into because they say some of the some big partners they want to talk about. Now, one of them is Activision, no doubt. They're going to talk about Call of Duty. I think that that's a total given. But what else could there be? Maybe EA and Battlefield? I don't know about that i think that we'll get some sort of launch trailer for death loop or something that's another yeah. external partner but square enix could be showing final fantasy 16 although square enix and i'll say this now they're having their own tgs showcase at the end of september where final fantasy 16 is widely expected to be so they might choose to to save that for then but I, I don't know, man. The, the exciting thing is that it, it is all focused on PS5. Not a huge surprise, although some of these games are coming to PS4 as well. But of course, the mystery of just what is after God of War and Gran Turismo, we just don't know. And I, I really do think after this, we will. Maybe not much more detail, but I think you're going to get you got they have to say something. I, I just don't know how they, they're not going to they're just going to be like Horizon comes out in February, God of War and Gran Turismo later. And that's it still for now. It doesn't seem like the right move. So very exciting. And well, obviously, we record on Thursday, so we'll wait until that's done and reflect on it on the show. I'm sure that's going to be a great episode. Okay. The other thing I wanted to say real quick here, or one of the other things I wanted to say is that Horizon, which we know comes out February 18th for PS4 and PS5, they have all this information on PlayStation Blog about the various editions, both physical and digital for both consoles. So there's like a special edition and a collector's edition, which has like a an Aloy statue, and it comes, I think, with one of the robot dinosaurs as well. The Regalia edition has all sorts of just a bunch of shit in it. Now, they say at the end, please note, players looking to have access to both the PS4 and PS5 versions of Horizon Forbidden West, please purchase the digital deluxe collectors or Regalia editions. Dual entitlement does not apply to the standard and special editions. So, as this is being widely reported, if you buy the standard base PS4 version, you will have to buy Horizon again for, to play it on PS5. This is interesting. I don't think it's the right move, but there's two ways to look at it. Three ways, really. First of all, it's a money play. But they could really be saying now, like, listen, now it's going to be punitive if you want to stay on PS4. Now you have to make a decision, right? As the consoles become more and more readily available... If you want to play it on PS5, then buy the PS5, buy the game and move on now. And you will never have to worry about this again. And I think that is them trying to kind of say that. And I don't think that's a smart thing. If you're going to do both, then do both and make them interchangeable with each other, like almost everyone else is doing. So I, I don't think it's a smart move, but I think that you could argue that maybe they're doing it for that reason to say. We're not going to make it so comfortable like we did with Miles Morales. We're not going to make it so comfortable like we did with, you know, Spider-Man PS4 to Spider-Man PS5, the free edition. We're not doing that. We're not even going to do it as easy as we did with Ghost of Tsushima, where you had to pay $10. We're just going to make it so you can't do that. 
And um, there has to be more to it than the obvious money grab. I think it's a strategy. Anyway, what do you think about all of this? The, the collector's editions and the PS4, PS5, all of that. So as far as this, the, the inability to pay for an upgrade, I think, uh, is unacceptable. I, I agree with I could see their strategy of of trying to draw a line in the sand. But the only way I could I don't want to even say uh, allow it, but if they're going to do this, then PS5s need to be on store shelves February 2022. I should be able to walk into a Target or Walmart, whatever, GameStop and buy one if they're going to draw a line in the sand like that. But until then, I just I can't imagine how they would think that this is a good idea especially when we've already i mean not just us but playstation gamers in general have been hard on them for how they've handled upgrades particularly when xbox uh and their smart delivery system has been really consumer friendly and Again, how I, crazy it is. Just real quick. How crazy it is that I should just be like, what the fuck is smart? <laughs> like for like two years. Yeah. Like, my God. Well, go on. and that's the thing. It is so funny now because it's like, why is this so? I mean, let aside the fact that it's, uh, you know, a bad consumer practice, I would say. I wouldn't say it's anti-consumer, but it's a bad practice. Why does it have to be this confusing too? Right? Like. You're talking about different editions of the game. One edition of the game has dual entitlement. The other one doesn't, and you can't pay for an upgrade. So people are like having to check out a chart or something to figure out what they get in each one. This is nothing new as far as like seeing these different editions of the game, whatever. We're used to that. But now that we're getting into some, quite frankly, uh, the proper term fuckery with uh, this dual entitlement business, is just absolutely ridiculous. And I think it is honestly uh, a shameful move of Sony to do that at this point. You know, they can't have their cake and eat it too with the PS4 and PS5 versions, right? It's it's ridiculous. I think that part of it could also be that they're, I mean, this is why you don't make so many fucking rules, by the way, but they're looking at it and saying, like, we have made such an, a ridiculous system of rules here about around our games that people are just going to, buy the PS4 version and then upgrade it right for like less money. And they're going to some. In other words, I think they're making so many rules to say, like, we have to prepare ourselves that we're, someone's going to figure out some fucked up way to mess with us. And so we just so let's just not even make that happen at all. Right. Mm. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. When you have like 17 tiers across two consoles and and all these different rules. And sometimes you sign on a PSN, and you get 10 percent off of a, of a preload or whatever. And and so they're like, you know what? Because you're, you're calling it fuckery and it totally is, but they're just like, well, again, it's Sony, it's Sony bravado, right? It's, yeah. it's, it's bad. It's not, it's not good. I don't understand why a company doing so well. I mean, of course, of course, the bottom line is all that matters to them. But when you're doing so well, you would think you would just rather make it as simple as possible. So right. Like, just, just buy it for $70 on PS5 or $60 on PS4 and pay the $10 upgrade, whatever. They're not even giving you that upgrade, that option. It's just it's very bizarre. Here's how I look at it, too. Imagine, you know, some people are not on Twitter 24 seven are able to see the Wario 64 tweets about when to get a PS5. They're only able to go to a store after their workday and buy one. Just like, you know, that's a, probably a very normal situation. So in February 2022, 
if you still can't get get a PS5 and someone buys Horizon on PS4 because they haven't been able to get a PS5 because their schedule doesn't allow it, they're not it's not how they purchase consoles or whatever. And then a few mo- months down the line, they do get a PS5. And then Sony's like, yeah, well, f- fuck you, buy it again. And this time, not only are you going to buy it again, you're going to spend 10 more dollars if you want to use it on the new console you bought from us. Indeed. <sighs> indeed. I don't know how else to say it. I mean, indeed. I, it's very... I just don't understand why a marketer, like the marketing team wouldn't be like, listen, guys, we are so deeply in the black that the little bit of money we're going to extract out of this, which is going to be great for our bottom line, is going to cause us a headache that we don't need. Horizon is going to be a huge game. It's going to sell millions of copies. I know that at that scale, therefore, the economy of scale suggests you want to extract more money out of it. But I, I just think it's it's a it seems very weird. It seems like a move from a company that needs money. Right. And they just don't need capital. Well, we'll keep an eye out on all of that. Maybe they'll change their mind, but very excited about that in February. Of course, I mentioned already the Square Enix TGS showcase with Final Fantasy VI, 16 expected. Also, DC and so WB and some of their studios, WB Interactive, have revealed that WB Montreal's Gotham Knights and Rocksteady's Suicide Squ- Squad Kill the Justice League are slated to be shown off in October at this DC fan event. Are you looking forward to either of those showcases i am very curious in particular about suicide squad because of how great rocksteady has been in the past with their batman games so i'll be honest i'm not like thrilled about the direction like isn't it's been so many months now since the reveal suicide squad is a multiplayer game as well it seems like it it seems like it'll be both yeah right and so both of these games gotham knights and suicide squad both have like co-op multiplayer elements which is cool it's not really what i would want but again this is one of those things where i'm just trusting in uh not trusting but i have optimism because of the name behind it with rocksteady i i do too i'm excited to see i don't care so much about the suicide squad thing although i'll play it probably if, it, if it's any good but gotham knights i'll definitely play in so I'm, I'm actually looking more forward to that but those are both 2022 games now i think i i wanted to look this up yes Gotham Knights is cross-gen. Suicide Squad is next-gen only. So we'll get a little bit of a taste of both styles of game, which is kind of cool. And very similar to what actually Rocksteady did with their last full game, which was 2015's Arkham Knight, which was another early showcase within the first 18 months or so of the console's launch for PS4. So there's that. Also having an event, THQ Nordic on September 17th. And David Jacobs wrote in about this. He said, hello, sweet boys, with the THQ Digital Showcase event announced for September 17th, promising return of, quote, return of legendary franchises and sequels to beloved games, end quote. My question is, what do you hope for, hope and or think will be revealed? As always, keep up the stellar work and keep fucking that chicken. So, THQ Nordic is in the Embracer group. We know that, right? One of the, they're one of the, like, six legs of that bizarre stool. And they own a series of studios. They own, I think, like almost 20 studios, including some of the bigger ones. They own like Black Forest and Gunfire Games and and a few others. But what they really own actually is IP. And I went and looked at all the IP they own because they've been acquiring IP left and right. And so we know we're going to see Elix too. I think that that's an obvious game that people are going to see, but there are other possibilities. So here are some of the possibilities that they're going to bring back some of their old games. They own Gothic now. They own Risen. They own Carmageddon. 
They own, and we talked about Atari a few weeks ago. They own Alone in the Dark, which they got from Atari when they were in trouble. They own, and this is one I think you will see, Kingdoms of Amalur. So I think that that's one that's almost like definitely, or not definitely, but I, I want to say you would want to assume that that's a given. They own Biomutant. I don't know if they'll get back to that. They own Gianna Sisters, which is a Black Forest game uh, that some people enjoy. And then they own like some other stuff like Legends of War and some older stuff that they purchased from smaller publishers when they were just getting off the ground. They own like Panzer Tactics. And let's see, is there anything else here that I'm missing? Oh, Stuntman. That's one oh, man. you draw, which would be Stuntman. Tempting Fate. Full Spectrum Warrior, Frontlines, Fuel of War. Remember that one? They own that. They own Destroy All Humans. They own Darksiders. They own The Blob. So there's a lot here. I mean, th- who the fuck knows what, what's going to come out of this? But I think they're, they're saying their 10th anniversary, I think six games. We'll find out. Oh, oh, actually, some of these they sold, I think, to Deep Silver, like Painkiller, yeah. So do you uh, have any ideas? You want to see you draw come back? Yeah, dude, you draw too. Uh, that will be the, you know, the number one thing. The question I'm wondering, you brought, brought up Kingdoms of Amalur and they announced an expansion for the re-reckoning version of the game. Yeah. And I don't think that's ever, I think that kind of went dark. Maybe it'll be a bridge. Yeah, maybe. Do they also own? Wasn't there some talk about time splitters? Did you mention time splitters? Yeah, but I think time splitters was there. Time splitters, I think, is been was given to Deep Silver, Deep which Silver. is in the Embracer group, but not <laughs> under THQ Nordic anymore. Right. So just somewhere else in there now. Yeah, it's so confusing. I was thinking when um when this got announced, I was thinking about THQ Nordic and then Embracer, and I was like, man, if there was an Embracer one, they could give like one minute to every one of their studios, and it would still be over an hour long. Like to have everybody since they're so huge now. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because, you know, if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now, all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie. And we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews. But now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. Let's see what else is here. Oh, I wanted to point out this article over on Game Informer if people are interested in it. It's called Naughty by Nature, and it's just a brief interview with co-presidents Evan Wells and Neil Druckmann. 
over at Naughty Dog. And they talk a little bit. I mean, if you read my history of Naughty Dog, you're not going to learn too much about their older stuff here. But there's some stuff, it's, it, including about, well, a few of the things that I thought were interesting included discussion about how they deal with being considered like the best team, which is kind of interesting and whether they believe that or not. And I talked to them about that, too, back in the day. And they were talking about an interesting thing I think people might want more insight in, which is in The Last of Us Part 2, part of it takes place in Seattle, which I don't think is a spoiler, but they were talking about it openly in the interview because they were saying when they were working on it, they went to Sucker Punch and they were like, can we just take infamous Second Son Seattle and just plop it into The Last of Us as a placeholder so we can get a feel for everything and then replace it later? And they did that. And they were also talking about how they used the same horses for motion capture on Ghost of Tsushima and on The Last of Us Part Two to save money and all of that and work together. So some interesting stuff about cross-pollination between the studios as well there. And then they talk about crunch a little bit and they talk about unionization. And those two answers were not what people wanted to hear, which was that like, we don't think crunch. First of all, they just say like, we don't even think crunch. I mean, in so many words, we don't even really think crunch is a problem. We work very hard is what they say. And also that they hadn't thought too carefully about unionization. But I wanted to just suggest that to people if they want to read a little bit of a back and forth. And let's see. Oh, there's a rumor. I don't know if it's true or not circulating that Uncharted might be coming to PC. We talked a little bit about this, a PC collection. QT wrote into us on Patreon and said, gentlemen, it looks like Uncharted is going to PC all five games. Obviously, Sony is committing to this PC port initiative. So do you think there would be benefit of Sony releasing their own Windows PC launcher where you can purchase and launch PS games, giving them 100% of the revenue, much as Xbox has done with their ecosystem? Or do you think on Steam and Epic, being on Steam and Epic gives more exposure to their products in the way forward? Well, Xbox does both, don't they? Right. It aren't so I think that I don't have any problem with Sony having its own launcher. So as long as they're where otherwise, there's no reason to put the games on PC. You got to you have to be on Steam, I think. And obviously, Sony also owns a small percentage of Epic. So they're going to want to be there. But what did you make of this rumor? They're calling it. So the reason I was reading Push Square, which is a site I love. And Stephen Talby over there wrote that the rumor is probably real, but the image that was leaked is probably fake. And you can go see the image. I'm not so sure why I per se see that the image is fake. The problem I have with this, though, this teaser image is that I feel like if they're going to do this, why wouldn't they also do it on PS5? Wouldn't you say we're releasing all the Uncharted games on PS5 and on PC? I think it's very weird, in other words, to say like, oh, yeah, we'll put them on PC and you can just play them via backwards compatibility and we'll just put all this work into it here but the logo or the uh, the leaked image has a nix's logo on it and a naughty dog logo on it it could make sense as to why maybe sony got involved with nix's although they've been involved in the back end maybe that was what drew them to them to say like well and we know these projects are coming so anyway i'm going on and on do you think that this is real i think that it is real but i am in agreement that i think this image is fake i think that if we when we see them come to PC, I would imagine I don't think they're going to get a native PS5 ports, but I would expect that that's when you'll get the like 60 FPS patch for Uncharted 5 and the Uncharted collection already runs at 60. They may be able to like up the res on those or something. I can't honestly can't really remember how high those ran initially, but this this image is weird because it says Uncharted the Naughty Dog PC collection that's i don't know the way that it's worded on here and this image just seems strange but 
Yeah, I think it's definitely possible. I mean, we saw that image from that Sony presentation that was like coming to PC and it showed Uncharted 4, right? right. So it's inevitable on, on uh, it's coming eventually, but I would imagine that they're going to want to make sure that they're at least somewhat on par uh, with P- with PS5 as well. I feel like, I, I don't know. I, I agree that, listen, we know that games are coming. Nix is, is a first party studio now all about porting PC, the games to PC. That's all they do. Right. And so, yes, but it's hard to, to differentiate now. Like any rumor will make sense because I was like, yeah, they could be doing that. They could be porting blah, 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 blah. So Uncharted, I just think the timing lines up a little bit that the rumor says they come out in December. The timing lines up a little bit if Sony was going to at the event coming up reveal this for PC, PS5 as well and say uh, in December all the Uncharted games are getting low, you know natively released on PS5 and also on PC. I, I just I don't know. It just seems kind of weird. I know that you can play them all on PS5 via backwards compatibility, but it just seems like a strange move. We'll see. We'll keep an eye on that on that as well. Uh, yeah. The original Horizon just got the 60 FPS patch and it's not a PS5 port. And even the PC version actually still mm-hmm. uh, in some ways runs better than the PS5 version just because they're do it's not a uh, a native PS5 version where they actually went in and did a lot of work. They basically just like took some of the PC stuff and then applied it to the PlayStation version and then allowed the PS5 to run it at 60. So who knows? All right. Uh, next up, I just wanted to bring up that EA Motive showed off Dead Space. I don't know if you got a chance to look at that, but they did. And they they basically, it was very early. And I know a lot of people were very complimentary to them about showing the game in kind of a bare bones way and showing very stark and interesting comparisons of the original 2008 game and the 2020X, I don't know, 2020X remake. Although I'm very excited to play it. I, I still think Dead Space is the greatest survival horror game ever. But Thomas Culp wrote in and said, hey, CCD, maybe it's much ado about nothing, but it's something something is bugging me about that Dead Space developer live stream. It's been reported that EA is consulting with a community council of fans on the remake. They identified two of those members as the host of the live stream, a Twitch streamer and a games podcaster. That begs the question, who else of prominence in games media is part of this or similar councils? Surely they would be under an NDA. This just seems like a model ripe for impropriety. Maybe it's all great, though. Thoughts and many thanks. So first of all, what did you think about what we saw of Dead Space? And what do you think about Thomas's? I don't know. I, I think astute observation that this is getting a little weird. I, I, I do, again, think that the crossover between games marketing and PR and hosting a podcast, for instance, blurring those lines is done at your own peril. Ultimately, you might make some quick money, but people aren't going to trust you ultimately if you keep doing this shit. So what do you make of all that? I think the remake, the there's like a, a comparison image that was all over Twitter. It looks very cool. I mean, it looks fantastic. Honestly, the way that they're doing this, rollout where they're like this isn't even our gameplay reveal we're just showing you stuff so we can get some feedback very different approach for ea and very interesting you gotta wonder what the maybe they're just like worried about they don't want to have a situation where they piss off fans of the original and so they're willing to show it to people early i was trying to figure that out in my head but as far as the the community council right i mean 
This is thoughts I've had even on a much lower level where when you preview a game somewhere, a lot of times the developer will ask you if you have any feedback. And I'm always inclined to not really say anything. Like, I'll just say, I liked this, but I'm not going to give you a breakdown. That's not like my job as someone who is previewing the game in the media. This takes it many, many steps further, um, which clearly if you were a part of something like that, like that, it must be just, I mean, I guess it doesn't have to be, but it really should be to your audience be disclosed. First of all, that you're doing this. And secondly, I mean, it comes at a cost. Like you said, Colin, eventually you're, I don't know. You don't want to be in the kitchen too much. Uh, like you're the critic. You can't be too much of part of the process of how it gets made and marketed. Or again, you lose your, uh, validity as a, a critic completely. And this is something we've talked about before. And it's like, we're not trying to, to diss these people or, or disrespect them, but we very clearly have a disagreement about what is ethical and what is not. And ultimately it's up to the audience to decide whether or not you're willing to listen to these people that are quite literally on the payroll of the companies that they are later than discussing on their podcast. Like they get a check. They're getting a check from EA to do this or Xbox or whoever. Some of these other companies like that's a decision you have to make. If you're willing to still listen to that person, it's on the audience. Yeah. It's almost interesting because I don't know what the pay structure is for these various things. When we used to do stuff, it kind of funny. We got paid for it and I wasn't comfortable with it there at all. But, and I made that known, but it, the, the, the sadder thing was it be if they weren't getting paid for. It. I mean, that would even be worse uh, in some way, yeah. because then it's like, why are you even p- compromising yourself at all so you can look cool? Because I really feel like a lot of people in the industry, they don't know quite what to do. Do they create a really meaningful relationship with a large audience, a vast audience of people who trust them? Or do they remain cool with the in-group? There's not too much of both going on. And you know, PewDiePie or something like that is bigger than anyone that does video game podcasts, right? And he might have some PR connections and stuff like that, but he's not going and like hosting GDC or something. He doesn't, he's not in with them. And we're the biggest PlayStation podcast in the world and we're not in with PlayStation at all. And that should give us plenty of, that should give us an awesome reputation. Meanwhile, you have people going and hosting events for publishers that they'll later play their games and tell you to go buy them. So I just, I'm going to keep saying that this is not good. Everyone can do. I'm not saying you shouldn't do it. If you're a creator out there and that's what you want to do and that's how you want to make your money, that's cool. But I'm much I'm I'm much happier that we make our money from an audience and not from the publishers. And I think that if I sacrificed one, then it would if I if I did one, then it would sacrifice the other. And I'd much rather sacrifice my relationship with the industry. I don't give a fuck. Right. So. The audience, you got to keep your eyes peeled between um, content and marketing because the the goal of PR companies often is that you don't see the difference. So keep that in mind when you're yeah. browsing around on YouTube. It's also true, and I, I hate to say this, but it's true. Like, well, even if people that do these kinds of shows are like, well, it's not going to affect my opinion. It's like, well, you better believe that they went to you because they hope that it does. And I that was basically illustrated to me when I was in these situations, not that I cared, but it's like, you can't, 
we like for instance square enix used to like host our packs pan our packs like show party and stuff i was at one of those and it's like how can you they were very nice but it's like how can you not then wonder later on it's like well that's not a subconscious thing to you i think it is and they're definitely doing it they're definitely taking advantage of you it's a matter of whether you're getting taken advantage of or not right i guess that that needs to be brought up all right Next thing to discuss is we discuss a huge litany of things here before we even get into what we're playing and then the actual proper written news. I was surprised by the Saints Row controversy going on. Now, we recorded right after Saints Row was shown, so I didn't even really get a chance to like I saw it. And I was like, oh, cool. Saints Row. I'm like, I'm down. I, I'm looking forward to playing. An, and I think I even said this to Jez Corden on Twitter. I was like, I, I'm looking forward to playing a, just a GTA like game, open world game, drive around, shoot things. But this game is causing a controversy and I just didn't erupt. I didn't see it erupt until it was too late. But I'm wondering what you make of it and specifically what you might think of the staunch defense of the game from Volition, the developer. The various trailers they posted are underwater on YouTube and likes and dislikes, which is very weird for a new game. And while the game comes out February 25th and therefore is way too far in, in like they can't be like, oh, we're going to change. We're going to change the whole game now. I mean, the game is definitely content complete, definitely playable from front to back, definitely in the last stages of QA. There's like nothing they can do now. Yeah. So they're obviously going to, to to double down. But what did you make of this whole controversy? Because we got a lot of letters, not a lot, but some people being like, Colin, why are you praising Saints Row so much? Like everyone hates it. And I'm like, I, I didn't hate it, but I guess I, I must admit I'm not a Saints Row fan. So I didn't know that there was... <laughs> Maybe something wrong with it. What, what do you think of this controversy? I first of all think it's really weird to double down and defend yourself publicly on Twitter like that. I find it kind of unprofessional from their standpoint. It's like, just stand by it and support it, but you don't need to be like, no, we're doing this and this. I'm trying to remember exactly what the tweets they're like. This is it. This is what we're doing. Like, it just feels weird to be for a, a a company in particular to be publicly defensive about this. Like it just is weird to me, but as far as the backlash of the, the content of the game, I kind of, I mean, I get it. It's, it's people that just don't like the fact that here's a quote. I wish I knew where it was from. Someone linked this to me in my, in, a, in my discord. They said, uh, the developers of Saints Row Focus is, at least early in the game, going to focus on the material concerns of the young crew. These disaffected millennials turn to crime to, for instance, put food on their table, feel part of a community, and pay off their student loans. <laughs> so, I mean, that sounds funny, though. I mean, like that, I know that it's a, like, I understand Saints Row to be like over the top, like where you're the president of the United States and all, sort, all sorts of crazy shit. But that sounds funny, right? Like, right. You have to pay like it's like almost as menial and trivial thing. I, I, it sounds it seems like it's just basic irony to me. I don't know. Maybe it's just maybe I'm not right. But because I think I think what people are reading into this is saying like, oh, and I was reading a lot of the comments and they're funny. Like you you made a game about yourselves. Like, right. You know, you made a game where you're the like and I mean, like the people at Volition. It's like a, a, a nerd in a button down and glasses is like a, a character or whatever. And but Saints Row, I don't know. I don't feel like Saint, in my experience with Saints Row that I ever felt like it was like very like AO or something like that, mm -hmm. you know? So this this whole argument that it's got to be like more politically correct and stuff, I'm like, I'm not sure that that's true. I think the last Saints Row game came out like six years ago. It wasn't that long ago. So 
I don't know. I think uh, when I was talking to our our friend, our mutual friend Lockmort about it, he also his comment was uh, that there's a clear like old Saints Row is like actual feels like you know crime dudes more mature not mature but this new one i think the backlash is people feel like it looks like the hipsters from watchdogs 2 yeah and has like a very that. i don't want to know zoomer millennial like mindset instead of like actual what is a zoomer i don't even know what that means is that the, i that. always thought the zoomer was just like the generation below millennials zoomer definition is that is that correct yeah gen z gen zoomer z- zoomer gen- Born in the late 90s and early 2000s. I got you. Okay. Yeah, we'll see. I, I wanted to acknowledge that at least. I'm still excited about it. It does a little bit reek like Watchdogs, but I don't I don't know. I, I, I just, uh, I don't blame them for wanting to do something different. Like, why do you want to keep making the same game? But maybe the argument can be made, why didn't you just make a new franchise? And I agree that they shouldn't be saying anything. In fact, I think it would be much more powerful for them to say, like, listen, you can hate it. The game will speak for itself and we'll see. Sure. Because to the point, it's not like it's an early pre-production look at it. Again, if you want it to change, then they're going to have to delay the game like 18 months because they're going to have to like rewrite the entire thing and do all the motion capture. And and so they're not doing anything to it. So, of course, they're going to double down. So you better just not say anything. <laughs> yeah. not, you don't gain anything. By, st- by saying you're sticking to your vision, even if you are sticking to your vision, because you obviously are going to stick to your vision at this late moment. Back to Gorilla, I just wanted to note this. People can go check it out on Push Square and other places, but the Horizon logo has been updated, and it's kind of cool. If you look at the Horizon Zero Dawn logo, so if you go to the game on PS5 or PS4, you'll note that the line underneath Horizon now is gaffed with a 1, like a Roman numeral 1. And if you look at Forbidden West, now it's a Roman numeral two there. So kind of a cool little thing if you want to check it out, something that you wouldn't otherwise notice. There's an interesting PlayStation blog post that I wanted to point to people about Astro's Playroom and the story behind those fun PlayStation character cameos. So it's a little bit of a story about how they they found and got Kratos and Drake and everything in there if you want to check that out. I want to know what you thought about this video game Chronicles story wrote uh, a video game Chronicles story written saying that Square Enix was paid by Microsoft $100 million for Rise of the Tomb Raider's one-year exclusive window, which I believe was, what, 2014 and 2015, if I recall? And that seems absolutely, completely insane. Now, the game has sold 7 million units. And uh, let's see. Yeah, it came to the PS4 in 2016, so it must have been, yeah, 2014 and 2015. That just seems outrageous to me because $100 million is a budget of a AAA game. Still, you could still make a AAA game for $100 million. It's not going to be the biggest budget game, but right. what did you, did you see that story? I just thought that that, that one was much underreported and from a very desperate era in Microsoft's Xbox's history. Although I will say Square Enix, no wonder they love these fucking timed exclusive deals. I mean, they, no wonder Final Fantasy, imagine what they're. Imagine what Sony is paid for Final Fantasy VII Remake. And imagine oh, yeah. what Sony is paying for Final Fantasy XVI. I just thought it was interesting. What did you think, though, about $100 million for Rise of the Tomb Raider it's for so, a year? It's so funny, too, because I think that this news just ended up uh, pissing off a lot of people as well. Because remember how they were real? They were trying to bill it as a permanent excu- exclusive, but they were being like, well, it's launching this holiday on xbox and they're like so does that mean it's coming to playstation later 
it's launching on Xbox. Like they were real weird about it, which I brought this up, yeah, which I understand they that were. was whatever, six years ago or something like many years ago at this point. But Xbox now is getting, you know, you see Aaron Greensburg be like, no, Starfield is always, you know, is coming out on Xbox, being made for Xbox. And people are acting annoyed that people are calling Microsoft's wordage into question. And it's like, well, they fucked around and found out with this game and tried to slyly act like it was exclusive until eventually I think Square Enix was like, no, it's timed. So it's interesting. I feel like we're still feeling the remnants of when this happened, uh, however many years ago it was. And um, yeah, I think it just ended up annoying a lot of people. Understood. Final note. This comes from Konami. Metal Gear Solid 5, The Phantom Pain. No longer going to be operable on PlayStation 3 beginning May 31st, 2022. Now that's how you announce a game is shutting down, Sony. This is Konami. Everyone hates Konami. So sad. <laughs> and Metal Gear Solid 5, The Phantom Pain will shut down on PS3 in like nine months. So just letting everyone know in case you care. There might be trophies tied to it, so you might want to look into that. All right. Finally, an hour into the game, into the game, into the podcast, it's time to talk about what we're playing. Okay, Dustin, so I leave it to you to tell us what you've been playing. Sure. Just Halo 4 and Halo 5 and Ghost. Yes. So talk about anything you'd like in whatever order you'd like. Sure. I finished Halo 4 and 5, and this completes my current Halo replay. I'm getting ready for Halo Infinite, of course. And let me tell you, Halo 4 and 5, not so good. And they were worse than I remember. Those are both 343, right? Yes. Okay. Yeah, they're the 343 games. And it's funny, I was thinking about these games and it reminded me what you said once about how you felt about when Phantom Menace came out. That when they come out and you first play them, you're like, yeah, this is good. This is pretty good. And then you start to realize slowly over time, though this was a much slower realization because you just finish Halo 4 and then you move on and you don't think about it. And then you think back a couple of years later and you're like, ooh, that wasn't so good. Playing these two games now, yeah, definitely not so good. And the problem, this is my only takeaway, and now I'll move to Ghost, is a lot of people are really excited for Halo Infinite, myself included. And I get it, the Xbox fans... They need this, and I don't blame them, but don't let your excitement get ahead of 343's track record with these games amongst the fans. Think about the fact that Halo 4 and 5 often cited as not, I mean, whatever, it's your opinion. Maybe you love Halo 4 and 5, and then you're, you should be stoked. That's fine. But for many of us, Halo 4 and 5, not so good. And then 343 absolutely botched the launch of Master Chief Collection. And so they've kind of already struck out three times for me. So I'm trying to be realistic, despite a lot of this hype around Halo Infinite, that <laughs> history says more likely it's not going to be good, but I would love to be wrong. I'll <laughs> leave it at that. Yeah, I, I don't. I have no horse in this in this race at all. What I'll say is that a game, it is very rare for a game to go through multiple directors, many delays, 
reboots and reestablishments and who knows i mean the story behind this game is going to be is going to be extensive because not i don't mean the plot i mean what they had to do to get this game out the door i think is going to be extensive and i I, it's not ready i mean it's still not ready clearly because of the way they're launching it i if i were listen if i were an an xbox guy i'd be like "Mm." (laughs) right i i don't know because i love how you brought up episode one because we've talked about that when i saw episode one in may of 1999 i liked it and you sometimes and everyone did by the way, I hate how this whole thing is like everyone hated it from the beginning. No, they didn't. That's revisionist history. I was there and that's not true. You needed a little time to understand, oh, this wasn't right and this isn't good and and so on and so forth. And so who knows what will happen with Halo, but I think we're not going to find out where Halo Infinite really sits until maybe a year from now. Right. When people have really marinated on it. But all the pressures on them with that game. I'll say that. I mean, 343 is under enormous pressure. If if they don't deliver on this game, I would think you have to shut that studio down at right. this point. They've fucked everything up. I think Phil has gone on the record. I can't remember. I saw a tweet somewhere that he was like, no, we're not shutting down 343 because there's a long-term plan for Halo Infinite. I'm like, yeah, where's your long-term plan if this game is a stinker off the bat? Like, yeah, you're going to fix let's it. Not, I, I don't want to I don't want to ju- That's just an assumption, right? It could right. be awesome off the bat. But I just I'm just saying if Halo Infinite is not a critical darling that's in the eights or higher on Metacritic, that's not a good first salvo against PlayStation. And with your most important IP, by the way, it's going to go all down from there. No offense. Right. So it's all down. Unless they have something huge. And I'm excited about some of those games. Redfall, I think, is, again, very promising, etc. But, uh, yeah, we'll find out. But I, I would imagine, I, I wouldn't know, I would have no idea how you would let a studio continue to shepherd this franchise that has just botched it so many times. And, and Chris has said, because he has a lot of insight, he knows people there, saying a lot of it really comes from the fact that they don't, they have a weird system in which they have tons of freelancers and contractors who are constantly in and out. And so I want to see the credits of this game more than anything. Just right. see, well, how many, you know, it's a thousand people. It might be. Right. And that's a, that's a lot of people. That's like a Red Dead Redemption 2 style thing. But Red Dead Redemption 2 was great. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, we'll see what happens there. But on the Ghost of Tsushima, are you playing Iki Island? I am still. I This is the one I've touched way less because I realized that I I want to be able to like focus in on it. And what's nice is that this event will take up my entire weekend up until like Tuesday, basically. Like I won't be able to pro- play pretty much anything. And now that my Halo replay is done, I'll have a little bit of time that I can squeeze in Ghost of Tsushima before Tales of Arise, which is what? September 9? 9, I think. Yeah, I think so. Oh, wow. That's so close. Yeah, because it's it's like a, it's like a week from when we're recording this, basically. Dang. And I'm stoked. I mean, I'm stoked for that. Oh, I'm so, that's the problem is that I want to finish Iki, but that's coming out at the same around. Maybe I, I don't know. Iki's not supposed to be super long. So between Tuesday, Wednesday and Thursday, maybe I can squeeze that in there. But oh, so far, it's great. I, I don't have a lot to add from last week other than it is more of the same. It's so it's a beautiful it is like, man, it is such a beautiful game and seeing it run at 60 is something else it's uh just really really good work from sucker punch i don't know when i'm gonna get to, to the eeky stuff not anytime soon i don't think we'll have to do some sort of spoiler cast for that though i think for everyone 
I don't know. So for me, I've been jumping around. I'm sorry. I was just I was trying to think who else played it. Sorry. It might be just me, actually. <laughs> well, we'll, we'll, yeah, figure, we'll it figure it out. OK, so the first game I'll touch on is I've been playing four different games to varying degrees. Demons Tier Plus was the first game I wanted to talk about. I played this on Vita and I. I uh, platinumed it on Vita. It's from a studio called. Uh, well, it's from Daniel Fernandez Chavez. I think he does work under like. Cat cow or something like that, but. He does like a few games like there's a game called Xenon Valkyrie, which I haven't played yet, but Riddled Corpses was a game I played more recently on Vita. It's just a twin stick shooter with a lot of role playing game elements, just a nice game to play in bed at night. Nothing too hard. So I enjoyed that. And then the game I've been spending a lot of time with on PS4, not a lot, but quite a bit of time is Dodgeball Academia, which comes from the Brazilian studio Pocket Trap. They released the game Ninja in 2018. People might remember on PS4, but. Dodgeball Academia is a role playing game about a guy named Otto, a kid named Otto who goes to this dodgeball school and it's cool. It's very cute. I'm not crazy about it, though, just because I think there's like a combat thing where you're it's like live action combat and like a dodgeball game and it's cool, but it's just kind of very basic. And I would have liked I mean, they're a small studio, so it's a really nice idea and a very different and new and, and novel idea, but I'm not like that drawn to it, uh, but I will beat it at some point now. The two games I'm messing around with more presently are number one, I downloaded a bunch of stuff on my Vita recently. I just I actually scrolled through over like two hours and went through every game in the store on Vita because they they separate it by A, B, C, D, E, F. So like I just was going through and seeing and I just downloaded like 10 games and one of them was Chasm. Chasm comes from BitKid. It came out in 2018. I don't know why I didn't play this more. I was really excited about it when it was coming. I knew about it because Dan Edelman was doing PR for it. And Dan Edelman was doing marketing and PR for Axiom Verge. And he did Axiom Verge, too. He like selects the, the finest games, basically, to represent. And uh, so I've been playing that on Vita at night. And I'm not very far in it, but it's just a it's a procedurally generated Metroidvania. And so it's pretty cool. So you never really know quite what you're going to get. And then I finally succumbed. Last night. I've been saying over and over again, I want to play one of these mundane bus driver games or farming or whatever. So. I remembered that the game SnowRunner was actually like very well received. It came out in 2020 on PS4. It's from it was developed by Saber Interactive, actually published by Focus Home. And it's actually a really interesting game. I only played it for like a half an hour and then I'm like, now is not the time. I got to come back to this. But it's just like a very hardcore truck delivery system, like off road delivering of pipes and all. And you have like all these different trucks and it's like an open world. So you drive anywhere you want, but it's it's much more realistic. And there's it's sold more than two million copies. When I was reading about, I was like, wow, like so there must be something to this. So I downloaded that and started messing around with it. That's kind of on the docket. But like you said, Tales comes out right when we get back, basically from the live show. And then right after that's Deathloop. So I just don't know that it's wise to begin anything else right now. But I, I was just so curious. I wanted to see it and play it. And I'm like, yeah, I can see myself sitting with this for 50 hours listening to podcasts and just dicking around. So wanted to give SnowRunner a shout out as well. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. 
And now it's time to get into the news finally. The, the news I actually wrote, although we've talked about so much of the news already. So let's do it in earnest. Number one, a new seemingly throwaway line from actor Norman Reedus seems to indicate that we may be getting a Death Stranding sequel after all. IGN's Brazilian website reported on a quote garnered from Portuguese language movie website Adoro Cinema. There, Reedus is quoted as saying, quote, I think we're doing a second Death Stranding. The game is in negotiations right now, end quote. And that's about it. As deftly noted by website Video Games Chronicle, this isn't the first time Reedus tacitly acknowledged a future project with Kojima, but noting that Kojima's relationship with Reedus actually began during the aborted Silent Hills project, it's possible he was talking about something else at that time. There's no question what he was talking about here, though, though there is some skepticism about the source. It should also be noted that Reedus isn't a stranger to video games or nerd culture. Rising the fame due to his starring role in The Walking Dead, Reedus has been around gaming and parallel industries for years and knows that anything said about a game or other product will be reported, so that he's willing to speak so openly is interesting. As for Gojima, his current status is unknown, though he has been long rumored to be working on an Xbox project. Should Death Stranding 2 come to fruition, it's possible that his studio, Kojima Productions, is working on two games at once. Death Stranding launched exclusively on PS4 in late 2019 and was a notable PC port when it migrated in 2020. A notable second, first, a second, a notable second party game, Sony funded Death Stranding and owns the IP and is on the cusp of re-releasing it in so-called director's cut form on PlayStation 5 in September. So what do you make of this? I, I think the big part of the story here is that Norman Reedus damn well knows how to speak uh, in the gaming industry and in nerd culture. It's just it's not something where you're flippant. And he should know that. So that he's willing to openly talk about it, I think, is interesting. And I, I just because some people were like, oh, maybe he was talking about director's cut. I don't think so. Maybe he was talking about another game. Well, he said Death Stranding, another Death Stranding. I think that that must mean that there is going to be another one. And I think, as I've said before. So and I wish Chris was on for this specifically, because I know that he's going to ha have a lot to say about a possible sequel. But. I think it's I think Sony lets Kojima walk away from them entirely at their peril. And if this is the game that's necessary to keep them, then you just do it. And maybe there is more. I think that stranding is fantastic. So maybe there is more to be said and done in this world. I don't know. So what do you think? Do you think Norman Reedus is <laughs> accurate? I, I don't know why he would say this if not. Yeah, it is weird because you're I think you're absolutely right in that he should know better. Let's look at this quote exactly again. I think we're doing a second Death Stranding. The game is in negotiations right now. I mean, if we really want to pick this apart, maybe Kojima reached out to him to find out his availability. And then he took that as a second Death a sequel, and maybe it's something else. I don't, I don't know. I feel like I'm... I just doubt it, right? I doubt, like yeah, it's doubtful. So I really hope not. Because, and I think we've had this discussion before, I feel like Death Stranding is a fantastic, complete experience for the entire story. And so, I just don't know, I don't want a sequel to that game. I want to see Kojima do something totally new. He's he's weird, He's does really unique stuff, and I want to see him do something new instead of... Uh, just build upon what he already made with Death Stranding. I guess that's kind of his thing, though. I mean, he made Metal Gear for over a decade. <laughs> well over a decade. So oh, he made Metal Gear for 25 years. 25 years. Yeah, so maybe... I just feel like, you know, he got unshackled from Metal Gear. Don't, don't, uh, 
why would you want to do this? Unless maybe he has, maybe I'd love to be wrong where it's like Death Stranding 2, let's say that does come out. He does have a really interesting, unique, unique idea and is able to prove it. Awesome. But I'd rather have something different. Yeah. I. It's more like 30 years, really. I mean, Metal Gear yeah. came to MSX in like the mid to late 80s. So and, and of course, he did Snatcher and Zone of the Enders and others. But that was what he was best known for. What gets me interested about Death Stranding 2 is just this idea, whatever it's called, that maybe it's just a totally different game. I mean, we got to see the world, but there's no reason why you have to interact with that world only as like a delivery or courier service. There's a bunch of other things you could do in the world, right? So maybe it's cool to go back in there and explore that from a different way, because who would have known that we would have explored this post-apocalypse as a courier? So maybe he has something else up his sleeve like that. I just don't I. On one hand, Sony doesn't invest in anything that they don't want to sequelize. They've been open about that, and everyone's open about that. So I think that it's always been in the cards that there would be more than one Death Stranding, if possible. But I don't think the sales of Death Stranding demand a sequel. That's what I find so interesting and why I think that this might be a way for them to keep Kojima from not working with them at all. And uh, so who knows? We'll see what happens. But I agree with you generally. I, I wouldn't want... If given a choice, I'd want him to do something else. But right. I feel like he likes the comfort of doing things over and over again. Like even Sony the Enders had a couple of games in the franchise and no one played those games. So I feel like he likes the confines of something where he can explore and make things up as he goes along. And I suspect someone like him has a lot of regrets about the games they make and a lot of things that they would do and change differently. And so I think that's why he goes back over and over again. Right. And because remember, Metal Gear Solid 2 was supposed to be the last Metal Gear. He said after every one of those games, two, three, four, Peace Walker, they were the last ones. Right. He said about all of those. So there's no reason to think he wouldn't go back to Death Stranding. And I, I think Sony would be stupid to let him walk away. And obviously you wouldn't do Death Stranding without him. And Sony owns the IP, but it's kind of... See, that's what's so interesting is that the IP is owned by Sony, but worthless without Kojima. Right. So yeah, it almost doesn't even matter. They wouldn't want to pull like, a, what was it, Metal Gear Survive and try to make no. a oh Death God. Stranding Survive. Let's go. Yeah, uh, that would be horrible. Be- I still want to play that game. I have it. I still I still want to play it. I bought it for I have no idea why I bought that game. It was t- I bought it because it was like five bucks. Yeah. I think. OK, number two, Sony has revealed September 2021's free PlayStation Plus games, and they represent a nice smorgasbord for players still upset by last month's wanting lineup. As always, these games will be free for all active PS Plus users during the month, and you should add these games to your download list even if you don't want to play them now, as you may change your mind later. On PlayStation 5, players are in for a treat with Overcooked All You Can Eat, a PS5 launch game that combines PS4's original Overcooked from 2016 with its 2018 sequel also on PS4. On PlayStation 4, players will gain access to second-party online shooter Predator Hunting Grounds, as well as the IO-developed 2018 stealth game Hitman 2. Because of a scheduling quirk, these games will be free until September 6th and will go away in early October to make room for a new slate. What do you make of this lineup? This is, a, I think, a pretty strong lineup, actually. Oh, so it's it's fine. This is a, a perfectly fine month. For me, I already have Hitman 2, but I'm very excited for people to get it. If you haven't played any of the Hitman games, they are all awesome. So this is your chance. Uh, overcooked, I'm kind of over, no pun intended, I'm over overcooked in that I just, uh, I get it, it's fun, you get mad at each other, but I find them to kind of be unsatisfying, just when I've played them with Holly, we end up like, (laughs) 
it always starts out fun and then you actually start getting annoyed with each other and uh then it's not fun anymore for me at least i don't know maybe no, you're... I, I agree that's what happened with me and my ex-girlfriend where i was like i can't play this with you and and i ended up playing it with greg because i was like i y- you have to be able to play games this is not it's that's what's so funny about the, the deceptive nature of the co-op is it is co-op centric but you have to be able to play video games you can't just give it to like your wife or your husband that doesn't play games and be like well, you want to right you're just gonna want to strangle them i mean that's what happened when i played it back back when i was that like, kind of funny i did that i was like i can't I'm gonna fucking strangle you if we can't it, because and that's why i needed someone with chops so it's it's and you can't really play it by yourself i mean you could i think but i don't think it's going to be as, as rewarding for you this uh this predator hunting grounds game i'm wondering mm-hmm. what the online base is for that obviously this will be a big boost if it's available to everybody on the service but i don't think I, i'm wondering if it even got like some a ps5 like patch maybe like higher frame rate or something that would be cool if they did that at the same time but this game really kind of came and went i kind of want to check it out even if it's like it doesn't need to be 10 out of 10 best multiplayer ever but just you and you and the boys hanging out couple couple space marines or whatever they are and predators or whatever uh it sounds like it would be maybe a nice time for an evening so I want to check this one out. Well, I was looking just not that I'm a huge Metacritic guy, but I was looking because you were kind of skeptical when I said that I think this is a good a good lineup. Predator is in at 62, so not not good. Mm. Also on PC as well. So there's a bit of a player base there. And of course, that comes from Ilphonic, who has a second party relationship with Sony. Remember, they're doing Arcade Geddon right now on PlayStation and that's on Epic as well. But Hitman 2 is at 82 on Metacritic. And the collection for Overcooks at 84. Yeah. So in some sort of objective way, this is pretty good because the last month's was not a good lineup at all. I just think as usual, it's about what you're looking for. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But Jackal wrote into us and said, hi, gents, with the PS Plus games being announced this month, I'm continuously seeing people complain about poor quality offerings being made by Sony. The comment section on Push Square is filled with I'm canceling my membership type comments and I find it embarrassing. When you look at some of the games that have been offered this year and the fact that we have had four or five day one release titles, it is time to admit. Is it time to admit that some of the PlayStation fandom is becoming slightly entitled, spoiled and in need of a long ass look in the mirror? Personally, my 32 pounds, which I spent on PS Plus every year, was already paid off in January when we got Shadow of the Tomb Raider, Greedfall and Maquette. The latter is one of my favorite games in recent years. Thanks as always for the amazing content. I mean, I agree with you. I think now I'm a little bit of a, a hipster with this, but when PlayStation Plus was first announced and revealed, I was like the staunchest supporter of it from day one. And you can go find my stories on IGN where because everyone hated PlayStation Plus. Everyone hated it at first. And then slowly people came around and I, I think came around to to liking it. And now it's necessary to play online and cloud save and all of that. But I find PlayStation Plus to be great. It's just the luck of the draw, not so much about quality, which it is, but so but more about just the kind of game you play. Of course, Overcooked is not going to appeal to someone who doesn't want to play with someone else. Right. But if you want a a high quality multiplayer game, Overcooked is pretty high quality. And so I I, I agree. I, I think that PlayStation Plus has gotten stronger and stronger in some way. And I and on PS5, the PlayStation Plus collection as well, it's 20 free games. 20 more including like massive games like Persona 5 or whatever. So, right. Do you feel like people are getting a little too snippy with it? Especially, by the way, not for nothing. Look at Xbox Live <laughs> games. Yeah. Day. And compare them to what PlayStation gives you. Not not for nothing, but 
it's it's legit night and day. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, okay, in here in the U.S., it's sixty dollars for a year. Often I find them on sale. Usually you can find it for forty dollars if you're on the lookout. But let's just say even sixty. I mean, what, what did he brought up the first month with uh, Maquette? But there's been a lot of awesome stuff this year, like. Maneater was on there. Control Ultimate Edition was on there. That's just naming a few. I mean, just because one month doesn't appeal to you doesn't mean that it's, you know, you're going to, are you really going to cancel the service? I think this is just like lip on Twitter of people that don't like the current selection doesn't appeal to them. So they're just going to complain, even though they've probably owned PS Plus for th- three plus years and they're going to own it. The entire generation and they're just they don't care about overcooked so they're gonna complain this is normal for twitter though and really anything that people will complain about anything that they find uh distasteful or inconveniencing certainly myself included uh, sometimes yeah we all i think we all succumb to it it's interesting because um i feel like the the evidence is in the numbers and i guess we would have to be honest and say Sony did recently report that PlayStation Plus numbers are flat, but a lot of that I think is expected as companies readjust from the post-pandemic reality that not everyone that was playing is going to continue to play. So we'll right. really see more evidence, in other words, if PlayStation Plus is really in some sort of trouble later on. And of course, because the, the, the deals are all one-off and secret, we never know. I know a few deals like off the record about how much people were paid for games. I just can't say. And... I wish we knew more about that because there's quite a bit, a bit, a big, a big spectrum as well. So if you're really interested in analyzing Sony as a corporation, which I am, and PlayStation as a brand and the health of the brand, then you would also really want to see the interactivity between the choices made and the rise or fall of numbers from the fan base, not from people that are just passersby. And we just don't have that data. All right. Number three. I'm really interested to see what you think of this. It appears Sega is about to lose arguably its single most important developer. According to a report from website Bloomberg, Toshihiro Nagoshi, the visionary behind Sega's ever more popular Yakuza franchise, is about to bail from the publisher to move over to Chinese conglomerate NetEase, where he will apparently be given an all-new studio and the freedom to work on something non-Yakuza related. Bloomberg notes that NetEase's acquisition will be a slight to rival Tencent, though it's really Sega itself that will lose out should the story come to fruition. Nagoshi has been at Sega for a staggering 32 years and began as an artist and designer working on classic Sega arcade series, like Virtua Fighter and Daytona USA. He produced and directed the original Shenmue alongside Yu Suzuki in 1999, directed and produced the original and early Super Monkey Ball games, which are about to come back out again. And beginning about 15 years ago with the launch of the PS2 original, began shepherding Sega's Yakuza franchise. With seven core games and some 20 spin-offs, Yakuza rivals the likes of Sonic and Persona as Sega... I'm sorry, Yakuza rivals the likes of Sonic and Persona as Sega's most important IP, and the loss of Nagoshi would be catastrophic to the publisher. As for NetEase, the move into video games outside of China has been far less aggressive than Tencent's. The company owns a minority share in Halo creator and Destiny developer Bungie, and more recently acquired a minority share in one-time Sony second-party studio Heavy Rain and Detroit Become Human Team Quantic Dream. What do you think about this? I feel like uh, I'd be curious to know what his situation is with Sega, because... If he's in a situation where Sega says, yeah, no, you get, we don't want you doing anything else. We want you making Yakuza and Yakuza-like games with judgment. And I'm sure that he 
is considered, you know, a top dog there, but you can't, you can't keep, if he's a creative, you can't keep them chained down forever. They will eventually leave to go somewhere else because I'm sure that sounds like this NetEase deal is a uh, very lucrative, as it says here, given his own studio uh, and the freedom to work on something else. I could, you know, especially if he's been there, how how many years since the first Yakuza game? Those came... So 16 years. 16 years. Yeah. They've been working on the same IP and an adjacent IP now with Judgment. I totally get him. And and larger responsibilities around Sega. I mean, he's not only with Ryu Godoku or whatever. It's 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 wider than that. That's why I think it I agree like I'm not crazy about this for Sega, but NetEase might just be offering a lot of money. I mean, at that True. at that point you just don't care. And if you have no scruples about working for a Chinese company then then all that's going to matter is money and they have it in spades. It's nice to not see Tencent doing this as they as they expand. NetEase is much smaller and much more deliberate, but they're all organs of the CCP. And seeing him go there would be a bummer. Even if the studio remained in Japan, which I assume it would, they're not going to like make a Chinese team. What have you made, by the way? A lot of people wrote in about this. I didn't really want to use any one specific question, but what, what did you make about all the nonsense with China and Tencent and the... Um, I don't know if you saw the... Uh, oh the stuff with the kids and they're only allowed to play a couple hours a week. And I was seeing this and what's interesting about it is it's bad news because for us, because their expansion into Western markets is clearly a sign that they realize that they're not gonna be able to make money at home as much as they used to anymore. So their expansion is going to become much more onerous Hmm. as a result of that. And because they have these rules under the CCP where you have to play like an hour, you can only play an hour a day or something. That's not going to be a thing here, right? No one's going to do that. So well, have you seen anything about that? What do you think about all the uh, what do you think about everything that's going on with them generally? Yeah, I did see that. And it's just a reminder of I mean, this is obviously very uh, I don't want to say small scale this is a big deal, but Chinese government can just come in and tell you what you can and can't do uh, when it comes to your hobbies. Uh, and that's I don't know. That's just frightening to me in general. Um, but obviously that affects uh, the the kids that are wanting to play these games but more so i think it affects uh the creators of these games in china as well and you gotta wonder we talked about that quote about it being what was it like spiritual opium was the line yeah like you gotta wonder if this is the the beginning stock in in the in their native exchange as well yeah right so you gotta wonder dude china's known has been known to do all kinds of uh, strange things when it comes to video games like I remember is it called IQ system it's like a Nintendo 64 that's all built within the controller that was released only in China it's like a, a, a Nintendo 64 for the Chinese market and they've like wiggled their way so it wasn't like technically a console and so this has been part of China's history and relationship with video games and it's just a I think to boil it down that the fact that they could just make that decision and then you see Tencent go down. Yeah, they'll do it. They're doing it to their own companies. But this is the choice they have to make. When you're a totalitarian regime, it's about control. That's Mm -hmm. all it's about. Sorry, it's it. And you have to control everyone. They have to control what they do, what they think, how they feel, what they say. 
And the more connected China becomes, the more dangerous the capitalistic streak in China becomes because it, it is not sustainable in their home market and it will require outside expansion. And no wonder Tencent is trying to expand so that because I was reading an article on Kotaku, actually, it actually had a horrible title. It was actually not it was like not as provocative as the title made it seem. It's by this I don't know this Chinese woman about like what's going on over there. And she was saying the reality is that like 95% of Chinese games are free to play. Like they don't get triple A releases. And so time is the currency there and not money so much. And it's different here. So we'll keep an eye on all of that. But uh, and and by the way, this is just a rumor still. But, you know, Bloomberg Japan reported it and they're not a slouch of a <laughs> they have a very good reputation. Number four. In case you're still waiting to natively play Cyberpunk 2077 on PlayStation 5, you may be waiting a while longer. As reported by website Video Games Chronicle, beleaguered Polish publisher and developer CD Projekt candidly admitted that the PS5 port, which was promised for this year, may miss its target. Such a move isn't a huge surprise, as CD Projekt has been dealing with the fallout to Cyberpunk's 20, tw- Cyberpunk 2077's disastrous PS4 launch in December of 2020 ever since, and indeed, the game has only been relisted on PlayStation Store as of a couple of months ago, where it topped the charts before falling off the top download list completely. Indeed, CD Projekt's planned PS5 port of The Witcher 3 Wild Hunt may also not come in time. VGC quotes CD Projekt's SVP Michael Nowakowski as saying in part, quote, the target is to release the next gen versions of Cyberpunk 2077 later this year. At the same time, keeping in mind the lessons we have learned during the past year and taking into account that this project still remains in development, we can't say with full certainty that the pr- production schedule will not change. With The Witcher 3, the situation is slightly different in the way that this is being tackled by the external team mainly, which is Saber Interactive the company that we have worked with before on Switch and also with updates in the past. As with Cyberpunk 2077, our goal is to release this game still in late 2021. However, similarly to the development process is ongoing and we cannot be absolutely dead certain that the release schedule will not change, end quote. The Witcher 3 Wild Hunt, which came to PS4 in 2015, is a critical and commercial darling and largely provided CD Projekt with the goodwill necessary to launch Cyberpunk 2077 to millions of pre-orders. However, the studio's goodwill has largely evaporated over the last year, though the team has been wisely hiring new talent from their modding audience, likely a sign that they intend on pleasing their hardcore fan base first and foremost. That was cool to see. Also cool to see that they apparently have a full 25% of their staff on the DLC. So they're going back all in on Cyberpunk. Brenton wrote in and said, Dear CDC, CD Projekt Red recently stated that a quarter of their staff is dedicated to the first Cyberpunk 2077 expansion and that they have learned lessons over the past year and won't commit to getting a PS5 version out this year. By the time a PS5 version comes out, will anyone care? I don't know about you guys, but I was lucky enough to skip the game when it came out despite being hyped for it, blessings of having a two-year-old, and I thought I'd wait till the PS5 version. As more time goes on, I find myself caring less and less. To me, this strikes me as an Anthem-style situation where the brand of Cyberpunk is so badly damaged that I think they'd be better off just moving on. Curious as to your thoughts, thanks for everything you do. It's unclear if that's wise or not, simply because Cyberpunk is one of the best-selling games of the last 12 months. Uh, or I guess it would be more, yeah, about 12 months. So, because, um, well, it came out in December. Yeah, I mean, it's been one of the best-selling games since then, let's say. Yeah. So, I feel like they would not necessarily be wise to abandon it. It's also not their IP. This is based on a p- paper and pencil IP, very similar to The Witcher 3, which is based on a Polish 
novel. So I don't know if it's wise for them to move on. And I like the candor of saying we don't know if they're going to be out in time. It just sounds to me like they, they are saying they're not going to be out in time. You might as well just say this now. And I got to say, when I read that, I was like, not a huge, not a bad thing for you. I mean, internally, if they look at this, we know the Elder Scrolls is coming. The Elder Scrolls five is coming to PS5 this fall. So maybe it's best to just avoid that and release your game February, March, April. I don't know. What do you think about all this? I'm wondering with this next gen launch, if they're doing more than just like getting the PC version running on PlayStation five, like getting some of those, that technical aspects. I'm wondering if they're kind of planning for like a soft relaunch of the game. I think that that's what the game requires at this point in a way. I mean, we've already compared this, but you got to wonder if they're, they're going for a no man's sky, like relaunch. Uh, I kind of feel like, I don't want to say they have to, but they definitely cannot leave this and move move on. Uh, I think that that would be horrible because when the next game comes out, if Cyberpunk is still in a bad state, everyone is going to be like, listen, are you going to fix the old game? It would be constantly hang over them. Cyberpunk for forever if they don't fix it. So I think that they're going to have to do kind of a, I don't want to say a sidestep or a halfway, but it's clear to me that these games are never going to work well on PS4 and Xbox One ever. And they've made that clear in the fact that when it got re-released on PlayStation, they there's a, a warning about the, the technical aspects. And so it's unfortunate, but those games, I think, never should have came out on those platforms because I don't think they'll ever run to the standard that they need to. It's just simply not possible. So... I think the best they can hope for is make a really, really good next gen soft relaunch and win back at least some goodwill if the game is very good when it comes out. That would be awesome. But who knows? It's uh, they've really gotten themselves into a, a bad situation overall. And the only thing that would, I think, win people is if the game is good. Uh, like overall, we've seen this over and over again where people are mad, rightfully so. And then if they're offered something good in exchange, a lot of times people start to forget like no one, not no one, but people aren't really mad at Hello Games anymore because they were offered a really good game in exchange as like an apology in a way. And so that wound healed with time. This is a little different. I think because it feels more like they really lied about this game, but maybe not. I don't know. What do you think is worse? Was, was uh hello games and no man's sky worse than cyberpunk or is it the same level of market deception or consumer de- deception? The, the reality to me is that it was worse and the payoff was, or the, the penalty I should say was not as severe. Mm. Like they they made a profit immediately on the game. If you're looking at it from baseline, they have nothing to be sad about. I think the reputation of the studio is sullied forever. I think now they have to earn that back. And it's such a shame for them because they really dropped the ball. I mean, The Witcher 3 was so advanced compared to its competition that it made Fallout 4 look like shit. And it's that's one of the most notable things that happened in 2015 was seeing that. 
and how how much the script flipped. But then how you give too much credit to studios, get too excited about games, believe the hype too much. No Man's Sky is a great example of that. Cyberpunk's a great example too, but gotta say Cyberpunk's a bigger disaster because it was pulled down. No Man's yeah. Sky at least functioned. And I think there's much more to the story. I, I, I kind of agree with what you were saying. I, I don't think the game was ever going to run on PS4. I think that that was a greedy and shitty move and they just should have released the game on PC at that time and done right and just been like, I'm sorry, we're sorry, but we're just not ready and it's, it's worth it. But I'll never, I'll be skeptical of them forever. I mean, The Witcher coming back out on PS5 is very tempting because I never beat the original Witcher 3, but I'm like, I don't want to support these guys right now. So there's other things to play. Number five, in a surprising announcement, Brendan Green, also known as Player Unknown, has left the company that owns the game which he created, popularized, and worked on PUBG. Word comes by way of a brief statement he released on social media pages as reported by multiple sources. Here's what he had to say in full, quote, I'm so very grateful to everyone at PUBG and Crafton for making for taking a chance on me and for the opportunities they afforded me over the past four years. Today, I'm excited to take the next step on my journey to create the kind of experience I've envisaged for years. Again, I'm thankful for everyone at Crafton for supporting my plans, and I'll have more to reveal about our project at a later date, end quote. Interestingly, he has since deleted this statement, but it sounds like Green and the Irish developer who originally created Arma 2 and DayZ mods before being lured away by Crafton a South Korean company which funded PUBG's creation. It launched on PC in late 2017 and was ported to PS4 in late 2018 and is widely considered the impetus of the Battle Royale craze. What Green intends on making remains to be seen, but it's safe to assume it'll be another multiplayer game if and when it emerges from his still mysterious new team. I was reading a little bit about this. I didn't know this, that I thought that crafting got in bed with him after PUBG was already kind of up and running, but actually they found him and gave him money to do it, which Mm. I didn't know. So the reason that he might be leaving is because he sold too early and he probably didn't make as much money as you might think. And uh, that happens sometimes. I don't know that for sure, but I guarantee you if he made that game and then sold it, it would have been a very different story. What did you think about this? I was surprised by this because I feel like even though he wasn't really involved in PUBG's day to day anymore, he was apparently working on some sort of spinoff. And also we know that Crafton is investing. Glenn Schofield and others are working on a single player PUBG game that's going to expand on the lore called Callisto Protocol. What do you make of all this? Yeah, I remember seeing stuff about him working on a non PUBG, but PUBG related game. And so I'm wondering what happened with that. I think one of the most interesting aspects is that he goes by player unknown. I wonder if he no longer gets to do that. Like if if uh, player unknown, the name is attached to PUBG as far as like trademarks and stuff like I wonder if he can keep using that or if he's just gonna have to go as go by Brendan Green now like his actual name going forward right right yeah who knows it's it's, we'll find out more I mean even the deletion of the statement indicates to me that there's something more here but he was brought on to make the game I'm sure he's a millionaire but imagine how much more money he could make if he just did it again but he's also betting on himself when maybe he should just stay put I don't I don't know I don't know enough about him to to have a take for it either way. But what a great story of a man who starts himself and and got it going. Yeah. Number six, Konami's renewed attempt to take on FIFA eFootball has a release date. The soccer game is set to launch on PlayStation 4 and PlayStation 5 on September 30th. As you may recall, eFootball is the new title of Konami's long-running Winning Eleven and Pro Evolution Soccer franchise, which began back in the mid-90s in Japan, and which has seen annualized releases in the West for most of that duration. 
The last game to launch in the series was a game called eFootball Pez 2020, and that came to PS4 in 2019. You'll recall that Konami wisely released a new season update for 2021 instead of an all-new game, and now it's stripped the price out completely. Of course, as we discussed weeks ago, eFootball will be lacking most of its feature set when it comes out. According to website Push Square, the game can be played solo, offline, or against a friendly a friend locally at launch, and there is also some online functionality. PS4 and PS5 players will be in the same online bucket for crossplay. However, there are only a very limited number of teams and stadiums at launch, nine teams and six pitches. In the fall, the first set of updates will arrive, including matchmaking and quick matchmaking and premium currency, which won't be available at first. You may recall that when eFootball comes out on September 30th, you literally won't be able to spend money. That comes later. I think this is pretty wise. Not much more to say about this because we talked about this extensively the other week, but I think this is wise. And note that originally this wasn't supposed to come natively to PlayStation 5, but now it is. Hmm. Number seven, PlayStation Now, Sony's fledgling streaming and subscription service with several million subscribers, just announced a new get six Final Fantasy games. Final Fantasy 7, 8, 9, 10, and 10, 2, and 12 are all coming to Now, meaning they'll be playable with a subscription on PS4, PS5, or PC. They'll naturally come out in sequence. Final Fantasy 7 will just about be out when you hear this, and Final Fantasy 8 follows on October 5th, then Final Fantasy 9 on November 2nd, then Final Fantasy 10 and 10, 2 on December 7th, and finally, Final Fantasy 12 on January 4th, early next year. This is a nice acquisition for Sony, particularly because these games were notably on Xbox Game Pass for some time, and also because they signal further cooperation behind the scenes with Square Enix, which is obviously still come, which which has obviously come to fruition with both Final Fantasy VII Remake, which is ostensibly a, th- a timed third-party exclusive that still hasn't come to rival consoles, and particularly with the upcoming PS5 exclusive Final Fantasy XVI. Final Fantasy VII, VIII, and IX originally launched on PS1 in 1997, 1999, and 2000, respectively. From there, we jump to PlayStation 2. 10 launched in 2001, its direct sequel in 2003, and then 12 in 2006, very late in the PS2's life indeed, Final Fantasy XII launched on PlayStation 2 in the West only a month before PS3 hit the market. So I read this. This is new news from the time we're recording this. What, what do you think about this? This is a pretty good get. Considering you can natively download some of the P- like PS4 port games as opposed to PS3 package games natively, this means that you could get PS Now for a few months and play all the Final Fantasy games, and that might be a nice deal for you. So what do you make of this? Yeah, this is awesome, especially just because... Uh, I don't want to say people were worried, but these were, like you said, closely associated with with Game Pass and people were, you know, wondering like, hey, uh, what do we get over over here on PlayStation? So this is nice to see. You got to wonder. Square Enix is so weird. It's clear that they know that Final Fantasy, their legacy titles have a lot of value. But at the same time, they do stupid stuff like only release it on Steam and uh, mobile phones like now, for the most part, all of these games you can run, let's see, 7, 8, 9. Yeah, they all have native PS4 ports, right? And 10 and 10 too. And 12. Yep. Yeah, they're all native. Yeah, 10, because 10, 10, yeah, 10 was, so 7 was native, 8 was native, 9 was native, and 12 was native, and then 10 and 10 too were PS3 and Vita ports, which they then made native. The, yeah, so, they, yep. they ported them over. It's like, man, it's so close. Dude, imagine they released a box set, the Final Fantasy collection, and then they put the like it came. I don't know, like maybe one through six are on one disc, but they're individual launchers or something. And then like imagine like the artwork and like people would be willing to spend like 500 bucks. So like they could and even then people would buy them like individually, too. It's like they're so 
close but i guess that's beside the point uh but it's a very good get for playstation now for sure absolutely number eight back in 2015 ubisoft made a rather strange announcement it revealed that it was going to create a theme park indeed the press release dated from september of 2015 notes that the so-called next generation theme park would be located in kuala lumpur malaysia over 10,000 square meters that were originally set to open to the public in 2020 however following this announcement all went dark and the plan never came to fruition that's why it was surprising to see it reemerge some six years later. The website Theme Park Insider reports that Ubisoft has partnered with a company called Storyland Studios, quote, to design and develop multi-brand themed entertainment experiences, including a concept for a full-scale Ubisoft theme park, end quote. And some corporate gobbledygook, uh, gobbledygook St- uh, Storyland Studios' Ben Thompson told the website, quote, Ubisoft's stories and characters are iconic and globally recognizable. The settings within Ubisoft game worlds are a perfect tapestry for physical world creation, whether historic real life city based under the ocean or on a different planet, end quote. Meanwhile, Ubisoft's Matilda Bresson said in part, quote, video games and theme parks have a lot more in common than we think. We are excited to join forces with Storyland to continue exploring the potential for synergies and design immersive, innovative and unforgettable experiences based on our catalog of worlds, end quote. Concepts will begin being presented this fall, and it's still unclear if they're planning to put it in Malaysia. However, the company tasked with bringing this park to existence in 2015, RSG, is no longer involved. Ubisoft, one of the most storied publishers in gaming history, is the owner of Tom Clancy, as well as Assassin's Creed, Far Cry, Rayman, and much more. Dustin, do you think there could be a viable Ubisoft park? Hmm, that's interesting. It seems like this is kind of a new... Uh, I don't want to say frontier, but we see Nintendo getting into parks as well. I would call I would call it a new frontier. I think yeah. that's a great way of putting it. Yeah, I'm looking. I was just looking up this Storyland Studios because I'm just curious, and uh, they actually have quite a bit of cred already in the gaming industry. It looks like they've done a lot of work with, let's see, Sega and Warner Brothers, helping design their E3 booths uh, and and stuff like that. But they've also done. It looks like they. Uh, let's see, worked on Legoland in California and the hotel at Legoland and Universal. So they've got a lot of like, this is a really legit company that does uh, these types of things. It's interesting that they're putting it in Malaysia. What do you think about that? I don't know much about Malaysia. If it's I'm weird. Being honest. Um, yeah, Malaysia is an interesting place. Now, I think. Mal- so Malaysia is, I think, tempting because it is a southeastern Asian like a location that's accessible from some other first world countries and I think probably has a pretty cheap cost of living with a pretty much higher standard of living because it's in the kind of that Oceania area. It's kind of got the tradition of tourism, right? And all of that. Right. So and also a very healthy economy. So I think that probably has something to do with it, but I don't know. It's also worth noting that it's incredible. The con- I mean, not that it's a problem, but people don't look at Malaysia like this. They look at it as very Asian and, and it is, but it's it's also very Islamic. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. Now, they're not like Sharia style there, but I wonder like how that might stymie your ability to make a full fledged park that explores fully Ubisoft's full stock. Of things because I don't think it's a character thing. I actually like what they said. It was actually interesting where they said like they have worlds. True. And I was thinking about that like Assassin's Creed could itself be a park. And it, I almost thought I'm like, why not just maybe it, it really limits you, but like almost make a roving thing where it's like sometimes 
it's like you put a couple of years into it and you make like a big Assassin's Creed thing for a few years and you strip that down. You make like another big like a, a location that draws people over and over again, very much like Disneyland but when, or Disney World. But when you don't have like that kind of gravitas, you need to have s- some other hook. And I don't think they have the characters. I think they have the worlds. I think that they're wise to focus on that. I mean, who are the characters? Who gives a shit? Imagine, Rayman, I guess. You know. Yeah, I was going to say, imagine a ride that's like uh, it's a small world. But instead, it's rabbits and you're stuck in a dark in the dark on a boat with the rabbits singing to you. I mean, this is this could be our reality, Colin. It could be. I, I don't I don't think that they have the juice, by the way. Yeah. Like, I don't think they have the juice, even, even if you're joking about the possibilities. Right. I don't think the serious possibilities that you be doing this has the juice because I don't even really think anyone has the juice. But Nintendo. Yeah, like I, I, I just don't know. Like Square wouldn't be able to do it. And I would argue Square has even more than Ubisoft. So. Let Nintendo do their thing, but you're right. It is a frontier of, of totally unbridled economic growth. If you can make it happen. Right. Finally, number nine is a wrap up. Website Push Square reports Sweary's new game. The RPG called The Good Life finally comes to PlayStation 4 this fall. While simulation game Alaskan Truck Simulator comes to both PS4 and PS5 at some point in 2022. That was the inspiration for me buying SnowRunner. Website Komatsu reports tactical shooter Insurgency Sandstorm comes to PS4 on September 29th. The arcade inspired Centipede Recharge comes to PS4 and PS5 on September 29th. Platformer Aeon Drive comes to PS4 and PS5 on September 30th. Farming title Story of Seasons Friends of Mineral Town comes to PS4 on October 26th. RTS Iron Harvest Complete Edition comes to PlayStation 5 on October 26th. Building game Airborne Kingdom comes to PS4 and PS5 on November 9th. Puzzle-centric adventure Beyond a Steel Sky comes to PS4 and PS5 on November 30th. Isometric action game There Is No Light comes to PlayStation 4 at some point in November. DRPG Demon Gaze Extra, which was on Vita back in the day, and Platinum Games developed arcade shooter Soul Cresta. Both come to PS4 on December 9th. FPS Severed Steel comes to PS4 and PS5 by the end of 2021. All-new Gunvolt game, Gunvolt Chronicles Luminous Avenger IX2, comes to PS4 and PS5 on January 27th, 2022. Racing game, Assetto Corsa Competizione, comes to PlayStation 5 on February 24th, 2022. How is my Italian? Action game Terror of Hemosaurus comes to PS4 and PS5 in early 2022. FPS RPG Peripatitia comes to PS4 and PS5 in late 2022. Rail shooter Xenocider, third-person shooter Gungrave Gore, and brawler Fallen City Brawl come to PS4 and PS5 at some point in 2022. Multiplayer game Spine comes to PlayStation 5 at an undetermined point in the future. And both action RPG Shadow of Conspiracy Section 2 and simulation game Trading Time come to PS4 and PS5 at an undetermined point in the future. The website also reports that action RPG Aztec Forgotten God slated to launch this year will now come out in early 2022 on both PS4 and PS5. Developer The Game Kitchen revealed that its surprise hit Souls Like Blasphemous, which comes to PS4 in 2000, which came to PS4 in 2019, will be receiving a sequel in 2023, presumably on PS4 and PS5. And finally, exploration game Jet The Far Shore has gone gold and will launch on PS4 and PS5 on October 5th. I'm really looking forward to that game. All right, let's get into listener mail. Every episode of Sacred Symbols... A PlayStation podcast ends, as tradition dictates, with six questions, comments, concerns, thoughts, and ideas from the audience. And we'll start with Braden Trishler. Says, hey, folks, Colin often refers to his disdain towards games with 2.5D visuals. And for the longest time, I was right there with him. However, while playing through some of the games in my ancient GameCube backlog, I fell in love with Clover's Beautiful Joe, which happens to use 2.5D visuals and is also one of the most aesthetically pleasing games I've ever played. With this in mind, what is it that actually bothers you about 2.5D visuals? 
I'm starting to come under the impression that what actually bothers you is the fact that many of these games like Bloodstained or Metroid Dread look cheap, not necessarily their usage of 3D models. Well, I think you nailed it on the head. I mean, first of all, Beautiful Joe is an awesome game. And that game sprouted Platinum Games, basically. The, the talent from Beautiful Joe went on basically to help found Platinum Games and left Capcom. What do you make about 2.5D? Do you have an issue with it like I do? I know what he's saying in that I feel like a lot of 2.5D games do have a cheap feeling to them. It almost makes me, I don't know. Like there's obviously there's so many pixel art games, but there, there are less that are like truly beautiful pixel art, like, like a super Metroid level. Um, and you've talked about this before where it's clearly it's like that's disappearing because it's just much harder to do. So I don't know. I end up, I was trying to think of like other 2.5D games that I've played. Of course, I mean, not to be the mean, but Tomba and Tomba 2 are 2.5D, I believe. Uh, yeah, because they go in and out of like you go through rooms and stuff like that. But I'm trying to think. I don't know. I feel like. To me, he just hit the nail on the head. I, I, that's why I'm confused by Braden's question. Because he says, like, Colin often talks about 2.5D, but I often say, because it looks like shit. I mean, it just looks like shit. Beautiful Joe is 2.5D, but I would consider it also doing something a little different. And also remember that it was very novel at that point to have that. Mm. And Beautiful Joe is a great game and a great character. But you're right. Like, I look at Metroid Dread, which is coming out on Switch in a little while, and I'm like, this game looks cheap as fuck. Uh, it just it does. It just looks budget. 2.5D just looks budget. Even 2.5D Metroidvanias that I really love, like Shadow Complex, they look budget. I mean, Shadow Complex would look better if it was pixel like pixelated and flat, but it doesn't. And sometimes games straddle the line or have a really great aesthetic that you can't really even tell. Like Hollow Knight, I think, is one of those where it's like, wow, yeah. this game is so beautiful and a lot of trickery there as opposed to a game that's much more literal like Shovel Knight in being 2d but 2.5d is a tool to work around the difficulty and expense of making 2d games and so when i see a, a game make that choice in the modern era it's a it's a slight against them <laughs> and ega making bloodstain a 2.5d game i think that game was really fun but it still looked cheap i mean the, the games that look better are the bloodstained circle of the moon games you know those games look or curse of the moon look uh Let's not call it a, a literally a Castlevania game. <laughs> Let's just almost get to the line of being a Castlevania. Like those games are beautiful and I don't feel, and they're eight bit and I don't feel like Bloodstains 2.5 D does it any, any uh, favors. And you know what the, the, the end for me was Mega Man 11 where I'm like, I can't take this anymore. Now I like Mega Man 11. I think it's good, but it's not great. And it doesn't have the same charm or appeal. It doesn't even play right if it's not in 2d. And I just, I've come to respect, especially because we're a 2D studio that does true pixel art, not at the highest possible level like Shovel Knight does, but very well. It is hard. We could have shit Habroxia 2 out much quicker if we put it in 2.5D and made a model and then just put it all over the screen and that was the end. But everything was handcrafted and handmade. I just feel like 2.5D doesn't feel that way. And it's not to say that it's never okay or that I don't like any games in 2.5D. It's just that if you're playing a flat game, you brought up Metroid Dread again and Bloodstained. These are Metroidvania games. They should be in 2D. Right. Yeah. Metroid Dread 
It's a game I'm very conflicted. I want to be excited about it, but there is something about it that feels a little cheap. I think I don't know what else to say other than yeah. I mean, it feels... could could it be that it's Mercury Steam and that they have traditionally made cheap games? I mean, they 2.5 deed Castlevania when they mm-hmm. released it on 3DS, and that game sucked. Yeah. So I don't know. Going back to that well seems a little peculiar to me, but whatever. How about this? Sean Collier wrote in and said, Yeehaw, Americans. With Hades sitting on top of the PS5 Metacritic chart with a score of 93, what game do you see being the first to topple this gem? Thanks for the content that in no way should ever be shorter. Thank you, Sean, for writing in Um, from presumably the UK. Hades, 93, highest scoring game on Meta. My lame answer is it's going to be something like Journey. But my because they'll just re-release it at some point. But the the real answer is that I think it'll be God of War. Mm. Now, I don't know. I don't think it'll be Horizon, which I think will be a late 80s game. Gran Turismo. I don't think so. And we don't know anything else. So. It could be a third party game, but I doubt it. Rarely do those games score that high. It's usually a Nintendo game or a PlayStation game that scores this high. That's why Hades being a 93 is so impressive or a persona or something like that. Right. What uh, this is a great question from Sean. What do you think will be the game that unseats Hades as the top PS5 Metacritic scoring game? And again, oh. I, I would my, my answer is lame because I, I think it's going to be something like Journey. Yeah, yeah I, I do. I do think that. I mean, I'm thinking for for PS5 in particular, because I was thinking like, oh, maybe Breath of the Wild 2 because it's such a the original is such a darling. But if we're thinking just PS5, like, hmm. That's really difficult. Maybe God of War. The thing, though, is like now games, I feel like overall the the scores of games, I think, have overall gone down. You don't see many 90s quite like you used to. It's like definitely a harder barrier uh, to get through. So it's funny because as as IGN and the likes have given better and better scores, everything, too, in my opinion, like they they hand out tens like. I think when I worked at IGN, we gave out two or three tens the entire time I was there. Yeah. I mean, that's nuts. In fact, I can name them. It was Uncharted 3. Undead Nightmare. And The Last of Us and Skyward Sword, which was ridiculous. Damn Skyward Sword. That's I can't believe I no offense to Rich George, (laughs) but I cannot believe he sold them on giving that game a 10. But but a lot of people feel that way about Greg and. um, And Uncharted 3 as well, although I was fully in support of that as well. And then, of course, The Last of Us was a 10, clearly. Uh, it's, a, it's a tough one. I think God of War is the, the answer if you're talking about new releases. But yeah, I, new releases. I do feel like you're going to get some bullshit like that game company trilogy. And they're like, oh, Jesus Christ, this is going to get. Yeah. Oh, this isn't PlayStation exclusive. I was thinking like maybe when they re-release. No, 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 you're not understanding. You're not understanding. I'm not understanding. OK, you're, you're you're confused because you were confused at the beginning. Hades isn't a PlayStation exclusive. Right. He's talking about PS5 Metacritic chart. Right. So just any game on PS5. Maybe Braid when they re-release that. Because that was a yeah, really, I mean, really high earner initially. Yeah. And if they make it let's better. Be on, let's be honest. Braid wasn't that good. Oh, I need to replay it. Was, it. it was fine. I, yeah. I don't know. You know. Just like Limbo. Limbo was excellent. But the way that we refer to it still. When there have been so many games that have done it again, including themselves. Yeah. With Inside, which is an even better game. It just it, it just anyway. Well, I yeah, go on. I would Sorry. argue that Braid is many times better than Limbo. I think Limbo is good, but overrated. 
you like your Jonathan Blow. I'm I do like Jonathan Blow, though. Witness. I do too. I have no problem. I'm a little mixed on. I love and hate that game. But Braid, man, it's been a few years, so I feel like I need to to play it again to read. Think about it. But as far as it being like like you mentioned, like a journey, a re-release that gets people remembering and already scored so high initially, then that could be a contender. Corbin wrote in and said, hey, CDC, is the game convention dead? PAX West finally revealed its exhibitor list for their show happening this weekend. Absent are Microsoft, Sony, and Nintendo, as well as Square Enix, Ubisoft, Twitch, and Devolver. The biggest name I even recognized was Bandai Namco. I find it hard to imagine these post-pandemic shows will return in full force, asking teams to create demo builds instead of just building their game. Do you think that shows like this will bounce back, or was that the final nail in the coffin? I feel like people are really anxious to get back to this, and so I feel like the shows will live again. But I think what's going to happen is that there's going to be a permanent class of people. I mean, I don't know how else to put it that will refuse to go to these things ever again. And whether they that hurts these shows in the long run or not, I don't know, because what you usually find, although I know it was different with PAX this year, but what you usually find is PAX sells out very quickly and people get very upset. And so we'll kind of have to monitor that when we get back to a normal year, maybe next year when we have a normal show normal series of shows and then we can kind of track that because I think you can just track your theory based on how quickly the tickets sell they're in the same places every year the same convention centers so you can track that they have the same head counts so I feel like the shows will come back because I feel like we saw it with Lollapalooza in Chicago right like no one gave a fuck everyone was just there they couldn't wait 150,000 people right no regard for the virus or anything like that and that's neither here nor there to me I don't I don't really care what you do but I just feel like people are hungry and I don't see why, even though I'd love for these shows to kind of go away because I feel like they're wastes of time for developers. I don't feel like they're going to. Yeah, I don't think so either. I think that remember uh, PAX East 2020, Sony backed out out of caution along with some other less notable people, but there were people backing out uh, this was before the pandemic really took off. And we were kind of, at least I was surprised thinking that Sony was being overly cautious. Uh, but now, you know, looking at everything that's happened, I can imagine that, let's see, these companies here, Microsoft, Sony, Nintendo, Square Enix, Ubisoft, Twitch, Devolver, are all being very cautious. And so it's one of those things where who wants to go to the show if no one's going to be there? So... I think if those companies were there, I would expect that the tickets would have sold a lot better, but you can't convince someone to spend a lot of money to go to something where there's not really anything that they want to see that badly. So I agree. It's going to take more time, I think, uh, for things to truly get back fully. But yeah, I think the shows will come back. Maybe let's see. The next packs would be in March of next year. Uh, for PAX East. And then usually there's not really any shows in between unless there would be a wild card PSX, which, man, that would be awesome. So that's kind of the next time that you can tell to see the the like the barometer that you were mentioning. Joe Rodri wrote in and said, greetings, bros. What do you all make of the day without Twitch movement? Will this make a difference on Twitch policy or is the streaming giant just too big to be shaken by this? Thanks for the content and keep up the good work. So for the un- uninitiated on this, Day Without Twitch was September 1st, so it already happened. But it was basically, as I understand it, people get 
there's like a lot of harassment going on, people raiding other people's streams with a lot of hate, bigotry. And so people organized to stay without Twitch where people just wouldn't stream that day. As I understand it, Twitch lost about 20% of their traffic. So that was a one day hit. I'm sure they're totally fine and don't care. Although I saw that they are losing some of their bigger streamers to YouTube. And that was a bigger thing. Like I'm surprised YouTube hasn't taken it more effectively to Twitch. I said that a long time ago when I was a kind of funny, we met with YouTube gaming in 2014 and we were expecting that they were going to be fine and like come up, but they actually weren't Twitch was purchased by Amazon a little bit before that. And you might recall that Google was in on trying to bid for them. So they tried to make their own competition and all that. I think Twitch's bigger problem comes from its rivals, not from people not using the, the, the service for a day for some anecdotal cause. So what did you make about day without a day without a Twitch? Well, there were still a lot of big players streaming like IGN was streaming that day. So yeah, it's a hit 20%. That's, that's nothing to, you know, glaze over. Like that's a, a big deal, but I don't really know. To be honest, I'm a, I'm a little ignorant on this situation. I know that Twitch has gone out and said that they are working on a solution for this. So part of me is like, well, they said they're working on it. How, how long has this problem been persisting? Um, if it's been a long time, then sure. But if, this is kind of still a more recent problem and they're, you know, they gotta, you gotta give them time to figure it out. I honestly don't know though. So the, the bigger question is with Twitch, like you said, the rivals, YouTube, like real big streamers moving over. And of course that's uh money motivated, obviously. And like, congrats to those streamers making bank, probably switching over to, mm-hmm. to YouTube. That's, that's awesome for them. Twitch has a lot of issues though like beyond this harassment stuff where a lot of uh, creators are not necessarily happy with, you know, some of the, the pay structure and how much money Twitch takes from them. So they got to be careful. I, I don't know. Maybe Twitch feels comfortable just because they've been the market leader for so long. But when you start to see your top talent switch over, uh, that's a cause for concern. Definitely. Twitch is one of those companies that's a verb. So that's a good place to be. But it doesn't mean that you're impervious to competition. Right. I mean, even it's unbelievable to think this, but even Google and Facebook and Twitter can be competed with. Often it's the regulatory markets that don't allow that to happen. But I would love for Twitch to get the shit kicked out of it just because I think it would be good for streaming. Then they would come back even stronger, et cetera. And it would always benefit the creator because a race to the bottom, although not not necessarily always fortuitous a race to the bottom on rates will just be better for the people that make the content. Right. And the reality is, is that both of those companies can withstand huge losses because they both have massive parent companies. The only bigger parent company than Amazon is Google. So these are two Titans that are fighting with each other. Takoyaki wrote in and said, hello there, CDC gents. Just wanted your guys' opinions on what are the differences on remakes, remasters, retellings, and reimaginings. Are they all loosely used in the video game industry to define something that's being remade? Or do they all have different definitions depending on how the game is presented? If the latter, could you guys define what's considered a remake, a remaster, a retelling, and a reimagining? And lastly, are there more terms used others than the ones I've said? Thank you always for the content. You keep me alive through the week. Thank you, Takayaki. So this goes to what we were talking about before, where we're going to get more into this. We were talking about vaporware and shovelware. Now we have to talk about remake, remaster, retelling, and reimagining. Do you want to try to tackle this? Sure. 
But the, here's the problem is that we can make our definitions here on sacred symbols, but the industry will always use them loosely. But here's right. I, I agree. Here's my take. OK, a remaster uses the core of a game that's already there and it enhances it. Maybe you're getting better textures. Maybe they're upscaling it to 4K. But at the at the end, you know, you look at it. It is the same game that they made better. It's running the same code uh, a remake is just that you're what you are remaking the game usually from the ground up that's where it gets a little loose is that like for demon souls they use the original code and then built around it uh in a lot of ways and then changed it so severely that you could say it's not really the same thing anymore so that's how i would define it and then the retelling reimagining I feel like a better word for this usually is reboot, but mm. sometimes people try to get away with making a, a sequel and saying it's a reboot uh, because it's a very different stylistic change. To me, a reboot should be a complete restart uh, where maybe you are taking the core of the original, but you're telling it in a new way, but you're, you're hitting the reset button. Um, so to make like a pseudo sequel and call it a reboot is weird to me. Like I heard that like, oh, Star Wars, The Force Awakens is a reboot on Star Wars or something. Like that. I'm like, no, no, you can't use that word, even though they're starting again. It's not like they're going back and retelling the story. Right. What do you think right. about my definitions here? Did I No, very, very well done. I, I, I agree with you. Because we can even use examples here. Remake. Yeah. Resident Evil 2 remake it's the original game remade now there might be some changes the last guardian is another example of this from blue point where it's the same game it's just remade right like right. you said remaster is the same game up and fixed so those are two different things so you have a remaster like i would consider much of the mass effect legendary edition a remaster yes right obviously demon souls is a remake now, I like what you said about retellings and reimaginings being reboots. I agree because a reimagining or a retelling would be like what we were just talking about, Saints Row. But you can also have a sort of hybrid of the two, like you were saying. I think Dead Space, which we brought up earlier, is mostly remake. I think it's going to be a little bit of a reimagining. In fact, when I was looking at some of the screens, like you can tell they're already reimagining some of the interiors and stuff, not in major ways, but the Ishimura is changing. So Takoyaki, I hope that helped. I think Dustin did a really nice job of that. And yeah, you asked for the word that you didn't use and it is reboot. And we again, it's so funny because we, we just had an illustration of how that can go so wrong for some with Saints Row. But I agree these words are, are thrown around too much and it's why we need definitions, not only for genres. I wanted to ask you about this or even to say this. I mean, this is an aside, but since Souls came up, sure. I was on the PlayStation Store. And I was just looking at new games. I don't remember what game it was. But for the first time ever on the PlayStation Store, I saw the term Souls-like being used in a description of another game as a lowercase, not a proper noun. Mm. And I thought that was interesting because that word has now become Metroidvania. It's a game. It's a word where you know it's not the right word, and yet you can't think of a better term, and it'll never be any different. Right. Metroidvania is the worst term ever. <laughs> I hate that word, but it is what it is. Right. And it's the same thing now with souls like or soul. It used to be souls born. 
And now it's like Souls like. But it's Soulsborne I always found redundant because it's the same studio and the same game. So Right. D- here's the thing. Uh it, at least with Metroidvania, I feel like there's like a few key things that you can point to, whether it's like re-exploring old areas, getting uh new weapons that allow you to take on different enemies, whatever, blah blah blah. With Souls like, there's no clear definition which this comes back to the problem we've talked about with adventure games right like there's no clear definitions like souls like what do you mean does it mean that you lose all your currency when you die and you can go pick it up does it mean to some people i've seen this that souls like simply means it's hard like that's what i think it does mean is that it's like hard and maybe some sort of permanence but then you start getting in the roguelikes right where the permanence is also there right I don't know. The souls like thing is weird to me just because some people will say it's a souls like because it stylistically looks like a souls game. And that to me is also weird. That's well, uh, people call blasphemous, which we brought up earlier, which is a 2D side scroller. They call that a souls born and dead cells was in some ways considered a souls game. Right. And I think that came because you were because that's where the roguelike shit comes in. And that's why we almost have a redundant term sometimes because Dead Cells was like that because you do lose your shit and you upgrade your stuff permanently. And I don't know. This is exactly just goes back to why we need definitions. I got to write this lexicon at some point. Right. Uh, To me, it's like it's clear that games like Blasphemous, Dead Dead Cells, uh, Hollow Knight, whatever. There's clearly a Dark Souls influence on them. But to start to label them under this weird subgenre is is odd to me like it's too loose at that point well i was just wondering because you wouldn't i thought it was just interesting because souls like you can kind of get away with but you can't use the term metroidvania like i couldn't make a metroidvania and call it that on playstation store there's no way they would let that happen and so i just thought it was interesting that souls is also a reference to a game and I feel like we all we lost sight of that. But and I don't think a lot of people know this. You know what else is a, a reference to a game? Roguelite, mm-hmm. which is a reference to the game. Rogue. Right. Yeah. Very good. OK. Connor Campbell wrote in and said, hi, CDC, longtime fan and new Patreon. Hope you are well. Thank you, Connor. Welcome. Thanks. My question is this. Why in 2021 are people still getting excited over pre-rendered trailers? I find it worrying that not just fans, but even shockingly games journalists will say something looks great without ever ever having seen gameplay or something, sometimes not even knowing what type of game it is. A trailer can look incredible, but without gameplay, it is next to impossible to judge, especially when without any information, a fancy trailer could be for a triple A RPG or a top down chess game. Established IP can generate excitement, but when it is something new, hearing someone say that a game looks great with no gameplay is bewildering. What do you guys think? Thanks for making work bearable with each episode and keep fucking that chicken. Thank you, Connor, for your question. That'll be the final one for today. I agree with him, and I sometimes do get caught in this in this snare because actually I want to look up particularly. I was watching YouTube uh, PlayStation's YouTube channel last night, and there was actually a great example of this. Let me see. They published a video here. Where is it? Project Magnum. Did you see this? No, I didn't. It has like 500,000 views now. It's from a Nexon studio called Nat Games, and it's unclear what it is. It's probably a multiplayer shooter. But when I was watching it, and it's all pre-rendered, but when I was watching it, I was like, at first, I was like, this looks great. And then as it went on, I was like, oh, this does look great, but it's definitely not going to be a game for me. It looks like maybe some sort of like Destiny type game. So 
we have to just differentiate the terms of being like this sounds, this seems, this has the promise of, as opposed to, and I think so, I think people know what we mean when we, or at least me, when I say like, oh, that sounds great or that looks great. You don't, sometimes they're interchangeable. We should be more exact with our terms. But like we were talking about Redfall earlier, which is a game I bring up pretty often. That's going to be a, an Xbox exclusive from Arcane. I think that game looks great. Now, I don't know what it's going to look like, but we saw minutes and minutes of pre-rendered stuff that shows the world and the characters and what the idea is. And I think it looks great. But maybe it won't look great when we play it. But I think at the very least, it seems like a great idea. And that's what the trailer is all about. We have to decouple ourselves from the hype as best we can. But we all get sucked into it once in a while. It happens to me. It happens to Dustin. It happens to the best of us. We just have to check it. What do you think about Connor's inquiry here? Right. I think that he's right in that I would prefer that these only were used for established IP because we know what we're getting usually with something like that. Like when we saw the the pre-rendered trailer for Horizon Forbidden West, we we know we have a baseline for what Horizon is. For something uh not to pick on Xbox, but like contraband. What we have no idea what contraband is, like other than the studios behind it and Yeah, Avalanche. Avalanche, right. right. Yeah. Like who knows? Like, who cares? To me, that's like a complete waste of money to to make something like that. I guess, I don't know. Some people do get excited by it, but I don't know. I was thinking like in my mind, am I getting too caught up in the, the semantics of the words where to say something looks great or something sounds great? It sounds very stupid to make that differential, but like, you're probably right. Looks great probably is the same as saying sounds great. I don't know. Like for me with Redfall. Yeah. Like the the when I think of the the elements of that game, Redfall, right? We've got arcane. You see the style, the style of the game, like the the taste of the world, whatever. And that can be, I guess, enough to go off of to create interest. Maybe that's maybe that's the line is the difference between interest and hype. Right. Uh, Very different things. Sure. Hype is of no issue to me. I just don't get that excited about anything. I'm not trying to be a dickhead like, oh, <laughs> Colin's playing his, you know, very old game of, you know, being, you know, morose. And it seems a little weird without Chris here to bounce off of. But it's true. Like, I just check myself. I'd rather be pleasantly surprised, which happens fairly often, than go in with any expectation and then be in some way crestfallen because it didn't match up to it. Why not just try to be metered and see what happens, right? As opposed to relying only on the word of others. And then once a game comes out and we can talk about it more fully outside of the NDAs that most people are attached to or preview builds, whatever, and we, we see it in the wild, then we can really talk about it. And don't forget the disservice that Days Gone was done because of this very thing and how that probably cost us the sequel. So something to keep in mind. Dustin, that's all I have today, though. Dang. Sacred Symbols, PlayStation Podcast. God, the show, if Chris was here, this show would have been really long. Yeah. <laughs> have any closing comments? We're going to see each other very soon. Yeah. I'll be staying at your house, actually. You're going to be here in this room with me. You'll be able to see what it looks like from from this side going forward. And uh, I'm excited. I'm, I 
so Micah messaged me to get my address so she could like preview the route. Maybe mm-hmm. this was a different time. I was like, I am really excited for her to meet Holly because yeah, yeah, yeah she said that. Uh, yeah, I, they, they've got a lot in common. They have like similar like kind of bubbly personalities. I think they're gonna hit it off, and so that's exciting for me. And I will just say, man, tomorrow night we have everyone together having a meal together from the company. I just feel like it's going to be a magical moment. Really. Yeah, I'm like, sincerely, that is one of the things I'm most excited for. Me too. It's going to be great. Great weekend. Excited to have everyone. I got to be honest, I'm a little annoyed because we, we made a little bit of a Reddit exchange for people to kind of exchange their tickets. Right. Why did so many people buy tickets that can't go? You know, I'm not saying yeah. it's like that many, but it's like, why are there like 10 or 15 people that can't go? Like stop buying things for like you, you might've cost someone else the opportunity to go. Right. That's a, that's an important lesson. We're talking about all the lessons we have to learn. That's one of the important ones is we have to just frame this better so people don't feel like, oh, I don't have any time to think like they let, let, let's give them time to think beforehand. Then then we don't have this problem in the future. But right. But nonetheless, we'll see more than 200 of you there. And uh, well, this will go on free feeds actually after the show already occurred. So the show is probably great. Right. We filmed and, it. Uh, yeah. And yep. so it will be available at some point. Not too long, but uh, we got to like it's actually funny. We hired my old boss to film it my old the old production company i used to work at is filming it so oh, that's funny it's nice. kind of a nice uh i don't know it's just was funny to me so full circle uh, full circle that's right all right let's get the hell out of here thank you all for your love kindness and support of all things sacred symbols and last stand media remember support us on patreon patreon.com slash last stand media merch all made in the usa last stand media dot shop i think that's it subscribe to us podcast services leave us nice reviews youtube You get the drill. We'll see you next time for more Sacred Symbols. Until then, goodbye. Goodbye. Sacred Symbols, a PlayStation podcast, is a product and trademark of Last Stand Media and Collins Last Stand LLC and is proudly recorded in the USA. The show is conceived by, is written by, and is directed by me, Colin Moriarty. My co-hosts are Chris Raygun Maldonado and Dustin Furman. The show is produced by executive producer Dustin Furman. It's edited by associate producer Ben Smith. All of Last Stand's theme music is by my best friend, Ramon Narvaez. As you know, all of Last Stand's shows, including Sacred Symbols, are fan-funded on Patreon at patreon.com slash laststandmedia. The following names are at the producer level on Patreon, our highest tier, and we're grateful for your thoughtful and kind contributions to our independent endeavor. Thank you. Andrew Morgan, Stephen Nieder, Ross Marenka, Miguel A. Brewer, Morgan Ashley, Azan, Michael Becchio, Jerome Ferreira, SLDFMA, Jorge Palomino, Daniel D'Amore, Brad Cooley, Jeremy Key, Patrick Leslie, Tom Quinn, Jordan Mittman, Julian Zhu, Tristan Palacios, Graham Plays, Christian Rodriguez, Jad Rita, Kurt M. Gillenberg, Patrick Skipper, Anthony Fuentes, Sweaty Mitt, John Russell, Chris Kelly, Dustin Graff, Israel Pena, Peyton Stone, Roberto, Josh Howland Rui, Taylor Watkins, Troilus True, Dan Root, Randall Holsey, Robbie Nauman, Nuke Dukum, William Holbert, Landon Pipkin, Dr. Stump, Josh Godfrey, Kalike Souza, Vornak, Betty Ann Moriarty, Callan Lennon, Daniel Johnson, H-Trons, an unofficial controller podcast, Ethan Davies, Jay Getter, Manuel Ochoa, Jeff Mercado, Gregory Slavinsky, Galja, Fortuna, Boots, Tyler Brown, Megadet, Poot, Gavin Newland, Saul Balcazar, Zach Parsley, Raul Melendez, Keegs, Eric Harden, Alex Bolton, Kinnums, Joseph Baker, Rodney Coleman, Chris Moore, Ben B, TB Lightning, Anti Kinnanen, Taylor Barkley, Will Hernandez, Timothy Baylor, Chris Galvin, Mason Cadillac, Ollie Fritz, Evan Dalton, Zach Allen, 
Young, George Anthony Nunez, Kyle Hagel, Christopher, Colin Love, Daryl E. Naaman, Ryan R. Kittredge, Toby Ryland, Michael S., David Bostick, Stewie 108, D.B. Cooper, Cody Bradbury, Tom Cargill, Richter 86, Steve Hodge, Holfeldian, Ian Bravo, Noah J. Stevens, Barrett Boswell, Andrew Parker, Christopher DeVaio, Chris Morton, Kevin Komaki, Mark Liberto, Johnny Waffles, Roto 24, Blake Israel, Jonathan Coates, Sean Mason, Josh Gravelick, Brian Chan, Jay, Organic Produce, Travis Archuleta, Shane St. Pierre, Carlos Algorit, Richard Hebert III, Miranda Grubba, Josh Yeager, Dan Parsons, Martin Beck, Joey Andrzejczyk, Nathan R., Joe McPartland, Gary Cavallo, Christopher Moore, Brody Rainey, Jacob Bell, Dennis Usel, Eric Finkenbeiner, Lou and Ray Loper, Jonathan Cortez, Dylan Burns, Jason Lusky, Malachi Wall, John Schultz, David Chestnut, Yusuf, Anton K., Brian W. Rath, Alan Tremblay, Tyler Bello, Ryan T. Mandel, Tony Zaniga, Sean Battershaw, Robbie Hensley, Alex Cabrera, Lennon Brixie, James Kinslow III, Hugo's Desk, Peter Reynolds, Anthony Vasquez, Adam Kiniston, William O'Carroll, Jesper Jansen, Phil Crow, Throw7, Adam Nix, Josh McKinney, Michael Gates, Alex Gates, Ryan Robertson, Sean Chandler, David Mann, Petro Rose, Lockmore, Gio Corsi, Gerald Pennington, Justin Wagaman, David Iacolucci, Paul Joyce, Chad Lewis, Enrique Perez, Joshua Smallwood, Shane Rayum, Spencer Brand, Don Lee, John Cordero, Keith A. Lewis, Marius Garson-Peterson, Ryan Greenwood, Tyler Harris, Matthew Perdue, Patrick Harper, Madmock Media, Jonathan Rice, and Casual Misfits Gaming. Hold on a sec, Dustin. Make a cut here. I just want to go get something. Cut. Cut, cut, cut. I'm actually going to cut this one, unlike last time. Fuck you, Ben. And, uh... Use a bitch. You've been a bitch this whole time. Um... I don't really have anything else to say. I think that's all I'm going to say. But I don't know. I'll keep talking because you're going to be curious about what I'm saying. You won't want to skip over it. It's going to extend how long you're going to be editing because you're not going to see silence here. And you're going to say, hey, what's Dustin saying? And I'm getting the last laugh. So maybe not. Maybe you'll get the last laugh. Hopefully not. Uh. See, this is the problem. I set myself up for these things and then later I end up paying for it. You know what? I'm going to apologize. Sorry. Shouldn't have called you a bitch. I should have, uh, should have been nice. Oh, look, he's back. <clears throat> Sorry. You're good. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because, you know, if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps, because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. 
Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today.